in. I'm actually going to play. Uh, Tracy did about a month ago or so, I guess, August 2nd. Uh, she interviewed uh, Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey. Uh, he's part of this case. So it's Missouri v. Biden. Uh, the, the case is taking place in Louisiana uh, in the 5th District, the 5th Circuit, and under Terry Doty, Judge Doty. And uh, so, but Andrew Bailey has got a good little interview here. I'm just going to play it while people make their way in and while I'm kind of waiting for Tracy and everybody to get in here. Um, if you guys could retweet the space down in the chat, I put uh, Tracy updated her, <clears throat> updated the thread on the ruling that just came out on Friday. So we were kind of looking over it all weekend. She put this thread together on Saturday and we were holding off until today to do this space. This is part six I've looked at now. So this is part six of um, covering this Missouri v. Biden case, which I believe to be probably the most consequential uh, landmark case that we're going to see that I've ever seen in my lifetime. Anyway, we'll see what happens from here. But uh, this is government censorship. And even the fifth district could not... Uh, ignore that the, the the district panel so i'm going to play this interview with andrew bailey while I let everyone make their way in and then uh, we'll get started everyone i am honored to be here with attorney general andrew bailey from the state of missouri who has obviously been working really hard on the missouri v Biden case which is something that if you've been to me over the past year you know we have gotten so thank you so much for joining us today. So much for this case so far. And I guess first I'd like to ask what your thoughts are about Judge Terry Doty and, and, and how he's been in this case. Well, like many like the judge, we think that we're in a good spot. The judge is accurately fairly calling balls and strikes and making some but relationship of coercion collusion between the Biden White House across the spectrum of agencies with uh, tech social media corporations. It's a, a relationship that is governed by the first speech that should be enjoyed by all Americans. And at the Constitution, and I think you can see from the on court and the court's subsequent order, the judge understands that the, the depth of the problem, that's why uh, the, the nationwide injunction that he issued on July 4th was so important. We've got to build a level of separation between tech and the first person that law was laid as a result of this lawsuit on July 4th. And we're going to keep trying to build that law in order to protect the election that's upcoming next week. Yeah, and, and that's like a big thing that people are saying, you know, if this injunction holds at the Fifth Circuit, they've obviously appealed it. Uh, they're going to appeal it again to the SCOTUS, right? So this is going to be a little while ongoing here. But if it, it reverses or, or keeps the, you know, Judge Doty's order as it, then the injunction stands. Will the Supreme Court also stay the Fifth Circuit's decision as they wait to hear this? You know, there's a lot of legal process that we're going to have to go through before we can answer that question. You know, it's always a, a bit of a, a, a crapshoot to, to guess what the Supreme Court will do. But I'll say this. In a decision that was handed down in May of, of this year, uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch in Arizona v. Mayorkas opined that it seemed uh, likely that the federal government had violated the First Amendment in coordinating and colluding and coercing big tech social media to silence uh, Americans' voices who questioned the legitimacy of vaccines or the legitimacy of lockdowns or, or, or mask mandates. And so, you know, the Supreme Court sees this one coming. 
And uh, I think we'll have a favorable tribunal there as well. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, these are the worst First Amendment violations in this nation's history. So we got to continue to fight to protect free speech in America. The whole purpose of the, the right to free speech in the Constitution is to protect us from the government. And here the government is weaponizing big tech social media to do indirectly what they would be prohibited from doing directly. And so the court's going to stand up and take the right side on the Constitution. And we're, we're confident in the evidence we have thus far and that there's more to, to follow as well. Did you happen to listen to the weaponization hearing? Um, RFK was there. There was a reporter from Breitbart. You know, you, one of the, the lead attorneys on this case was was testifying as well. Did you hear one of the witnesses for the for the Democrats constantly was saying that this decision was vacated? Do you think that's just because she's ignorant of the law or is that the spin machine in action? Well, yeah, it's, it's dripping with irony that the people who claim to be protecting us from misinformation are promulgating misinformation. I mean, that, that, that speaks to the dystopian Orwellian nature of this vast censorship enterprise and how depraved the left has become and its abdication and, and uh, you know, uh, attempt to subvert the First Amendment right to free speech. The whole idea behind the First Amendment is it originally understood by the founders that we would have a, a, a free, fair and open marketplace of ideas uninhibited from government intrusion, that the, the remedy for false speech in this nation has always been counter speech not government censorship and that you know the the idea that the government would come in and try to tell us what we should and shouldn't be talking about would, would run afoul of, of the founding principles of this nation the legacy of freedom and both sides of the aisle used to agree agree upon that principle but clearly the left has jettisoned that principle when it when it comes to big tech social media platforms and so this is scary and dangerous stuff so yeah absolutely it's completely hypocritical uh you know if you look at the speech that was censored that we've uh, revealed as a result of our lawsuit the twenty thousand pages of discovery that we've uncovered the numerous depositions we've taken you know it's clear and evident from that evidence and certainly the judge in the, the trial court thought so that uh, there was a violation of the first amendment there and that the government had coerced and colluded with big tech social media so the the speech that was silenced was it was illegal to do so because it was protected core political speech protected by the First Amendment was illegal to censor that speech. But secondly, it was truthful speech. They actually deprived American citizens of information they needed upon which to make good decisions. And policymakers on behalf of the state were denied uh, access to information that was really critical in setting uh, state policy in response to the pandemic. But third, uh, the speech that was censored was almost exclusively conservative. Yep. So they targeted speech that was illegal to censor. It was uh, conservative speech. So they're, they're trying to put their thumb on the scale and, and, and you know silence any uh, opposing viewpoint. But then also it all ended up being truthful. So this is a, I mean, the, the judge has identified this as a you know dystopian scenario. And I think that's a, an apt description. I think one of the things that you guys have done so masterfully is weave this sort of tapestry between the government and the non-governmental organizations that are also obviously holding the water of the government using American top tax dollars to do so. And one of the craziest things was in the hearing, because I went and attended it um, for the injunction, the government's attorneys, the deputy attorney general, was arguing that 99% of the misinformation out there is conservative in nature. And the judge basically just gave a look like, seriously? Like, is this really what you're saying? My question is, how how do we when the government is standing up there basically saying to the judge that they can't let him know whether or not saying a COVID vaccine doesn't work is protected free speech. How do you fight that when you're dealing with a rogue Justice Department that doesn't even understand the founding bedrock of the Constitution anymore? 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's why the con- the Constitution exists to protect us from government. And here the government has completely uh, neglected it, its responsibility in protecting citizens' rights and instead is, is attacking and, and infringing upon citizens' rights to free speech. That's scary stuff. And what you're specifically referring to is the May 26th hearing on our uh, request for preliminary injunction yeah. where there's a colloquy between the trial court judge and the De- Biden's Department of Justice. And so the judge asked a series of questions like, would it be uh, unconstitutional for the government to censor an American citizen's speech as it relates to vaccine hesitancy? And the, D- the Biden's DOJ says, well, it depends. Can't commit to protecting what is blatantly core political speech. So then the judge goes back and says, okay, well, let's expand beyond COVID topics. Would it be illegal for the Biden administration to censor an American citizen's speech as it relates to questioning the legitimacy of an election? And the Biden's DOJ says, well, it depends. Again, they are completely uncommitted to the protections of the First Amendment. They are uncommitted to protecting Americans' First Amendment rights to free speech. And look at what happened after the judge issued its order on July 4th, 155-page trial court order with a nationwide injunction. But if you drill down to the final pages of that order, what the judge is actually saying, now he reviews the evidence. So 155 pages of mostly what he's doing is recounting the evidence we put on in court. This isn't just Attorney General Andrew Bailey making an argument. This is evidence that we set out in court under the federal rules of evidence and that the judge weighed and considered and laying out the injunction. But the final pages, the actual order is federal government, you're not allowed to coordinate with big tech social media on core political speech. Speech protected by the First Amendment. All the judge is saying is you can't violate the Constitution. Why on earth would Biden's Department of Justice be in a race to appeal that decision? And why could they, in good conscience, go to court and say, Judge, we'll suffer irreparable harm if we're not allowed to violate the constitutional rights of Americans? (laughs) I mean, again, this is scary stuff. These are the worst First Amendment violations in this nation's history. And that's why this fight is so important to protecting our Constitution. So that... uh... That quick bit there, uh, I see names joined us. And like I said, Tracy will be here shortly. She's doing a hit with Emerald Robinson. She'll be here shortly. Uh, but that was Andrew Bailey. He's the attorney general out of Missouri. Sorry about the audio in the beginning. I've changed my audio settings on my iPhone uh, when speaking on spaces to voice isolation. And you'll probably hear it sounds better when I put it back on. But I just learned something new when streaming audio through the space, turn off voice isolation because apparently it didn't sound good. So Thanks, Kim, for letting me know. Uh, I could tell it sounded better moving forward. But I put the link uh, to Tracy's podcast here. It's on the Uncovered DC Rumble channel. And the interview with Andrew Bailey starts at around 27 minutes. Uh, if you want to watch that whole thing. She also did one with Jeff Landry. Now, Jeff Landry is the attorney general out of Louisiana. Uh, and Jeff Landry's awesome. He's going to be the next governor of, uh, of Louisiana. I have no doubt. I believe he's running this this election cycle so he will be and he's he's the attorney general on record for uh the missouri v biden case so it's missouri state of missouri state of louisiana taking place in louisiana with terry doty who is the judge and this has been going on for a little over a year been covering it myself for about six seven months and uh, tracy's been covering this for well over a year so she'll be here shortly uh but there was a development and so we're going to go over that development but i'm going to kind of set the groundwork a little bit so you guys can understand why i say that this is a landmark probably the most important case that I'm aware of going through the courts right now that I've seen in my lifetime. So it's going to be very, very important moving forward. And there was some good that came out of the uh, the appeal that Andrew Bailey was just talking about here. He says, I can't believe that the government actually wanted to appeal Terry Doty's decision on the injunction. So this is not even the decision on the case. The case is going to be ongoing over the next year or two. Uh, I'll be covering it constantly as stuff gets updated. But it's uh, it, this is just a, a, an emergency temporary injunction, meaning... They wanted to enjoin the government from 
centering you, using NGOs to center you. Uh, these very, very different carve-outs, CIA carve-outs, uh, NGOs, the Stanford Internet Observatory, who was responsible for the Election Integrity Partnership that became the Virality Project, uh, Kate Starbird's work out at Washington State, um, and there's there's many more under there, but they are they were enjoined. Uh, CISA was supposed to be included in this as well. So like I said, there's some good that came out of the, the appeal that the Fifth Circuit panel of judges that's been overseeing this um came out with but there's also some bad and we're going to cover both of those today name good to see you how's it going good sir good yeah i just um, kind of playing this as the room as the room kind of filtered in a little bit here yeah i just got to the uh end part which uh, we'll talk about of the uh the bad part of this which uh i don't know it's it's good but there's uh i don't know I don't like the sister ruling. Yeah, no, I'm not a fan of that either. And we'll get into that for sure. I, I kind of want to update everyone on the uh, on what's going on here. Um, so if you guys take a look down in the uh, chat, uh, this is the thread that Tracy put together over the weekend. Uh, we were chatting on Friday about this when it dropped. I just didn't have time to go through it. And I did not want to do a space on it over the weekend. I figured Monday would be a good day to wait for it. So here we are. Uh, but if you take a look at it, uh, basically she says here, you know, thread Fifth Circuit ruling on appeal of uh, temporary injunction in the case of Missouri v. Biden. I know many of you are new to this case, so I'm going to be brief-ish and update you before we begin. So yeah, I'm going to kind of go through the updates as well. That's why I'm reading this, and then I will uh, then we'll start to kind of dig in here because it's going to be very important to review this so you understand why I believe that the uh, the appeal was both good and has bad. So. Um, let's see. She's not here yet. All right. Perfect. So <clears throat> this case was filed last May by the states of Missouri and Louisiana, along with private plaintiffs and against numerous agencies in the federal government. The plaintiffs, plaintiffs alleged that the government, including FBI, White House, Surgeon General, CISA, and many others were forcing social media companies to censor speech by threat. So CISA, just so you guys know, is the, uh, the cybersecurity, um, branch of the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, they are they are by far, if you guys remember from the Twitter files, they are by far the central figure in government censorship and basically what they called the switchboard, where they would receive requests from all different kinds of agencies, including the Global Engagement Center, which was a hub for nine different agencies. <laughs> then they then filtered requests through CISA, and then CISA directly filtered uh, requests to social media companies on what to censor, who to censor, who to remove, who to ban, suspend, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so CISA was a very central role in this. Yeah, I, that's right. Our cybersecurity um, agency based in Department of Homeland Security, which was established due to the events that were on the anniversary of today. Uh, the, plain, the plaintiffs wanted a temporary injunction to stop this activity as their case moved to trial. Judge, Judge Terry Doty granted them expedited limited discovery and deposition to get the information they needed to prove a temporary injunction was warranted. So what, the, what, what she's saying here is, like I was saying earlier, this is just an expedited uh, discovery, an evidentiary uh, discovery to prove that the government and all these agencies need to be enjoined to stop trying to censor American speech, uh, First First Amendment protected speech. And so this was just for the injunction. We're not even into the trial yet. The trial is going to get wild. And of course, the government fought this the entire way, but ultimately were wildly unsuccessful. Uh, the information plaintiffs received was absolutely mind-blowing. So if you need to know what that is, on January 5th, 
of this year was a deadline for them to be able to collect uh, basically evidence from the government. They had to provide some 20,000 different bits of documents uh, from the federal government and emails. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. And if you go through this case, it's insane what's in there. And so, um, but before I get any further, that's kind of where we're at. Tracy, how was your uh, hit? Glad you're here. It was good. Um, actually, the control room lost power in the middle, which is why I'm a few minutes late. So I apologize. <laughs> no, it's OK. I actually started this space off with playing your uh, interview with Missouri uh, Attorney General Bailey. Oh, cool. Yes, yeah, so I played about 10 minutes of that. I linked it to the bottom. So if people want to watch the full thing. It's down in the chat and just kind of going through the thread, kind of recapping folks that may not be aware of what this case actually is. I'm going to shut up and listen for a minute. <laughs> okay. I'm just kind of reading your thread and then kind of like extrapolating a little bit so people understand. But this is giving some good groundwork. Uh, and again, this is the injunction hearing. So like I said, this is designed specifically for to stop the government from, from censoring. And I went through the agencies there. And then if you guys heard what uh, Bailey Andrew Bailey was talking about, A.G. Bailey was talking about here, he was saying on July 4th. So I remember because... <laughs> It was basically on July 4th that the judge, Terry Doty, had given his opinion, his ruling on the injunction of the government, and he released it on July 4th. It took about two weeks, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, Tracy, if you remember, I think it was about two weeks, because we did we did talk about it in May, and then we were kind of waiting on the decision. We weren't really sure when it was going to come through. Two weeks? It was two oh, months. Oh, was it two months? Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, and then I was already a, a few happy cocktails in, and then I was really happy. So it was a great Fourth of July for me. Yeah, it was. I remember because I was, I was too. I was like, yeah, let's go. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of briefly kind of give you what this is. So it was on July Fourth. I was 155 page ruling, by the way. It was pretty crazy. Um, and so if you kind of skip down a little bit, there's there's kind of some stuff there. But if you go to Tracy's uh, highlights page, uh, you can find. Uh, the threaded ruling in there, the mega thread, I believe that dates all the way back to May of 2022. So if you want to go take a look through that, that is covering it up to date up through July 4th and beyond. We have some new information here now. So real quick, let me go through this part here. So there were, um, there were basically 10 different uh, exceptions, uh, 10 different things that the government was not allowed to do in this injunction. And so the first one was they were not allowed to be meeting with social media companies for the purpose of urging, encouraging, pressuring, or inducing in any manner the removal, deletion, suppression, or reduction of content containing protected free speech posted on social media platforms. Number two, specifically flagging content or posts on social media platforms and or forwarding to such social media companies, urging, encouraging, pressuring, so on and so forth, uh, uh, basically reduction content, uh, free speech. So again, same sentences. I'm probably going to skip those sentences just for time. And again, urging, encouraging, pressuring, or inducing in any manner. Uh, number four, emailing, calling, sending letters, texting, or engaging in any communication of any kind with social media companies. Again, urging, encouraging, pressuring. Uh, number five, collaborating, coordinating, partnering, switchboarding, and or jointly working with the election integrity partnership the Virality Project, Stanford Internet Observatory, or any like project or group for the purpose of urging, <laughs> encouraging, right? Uh, those are those NGOs, those cutouts that I was talking about. Uh, number six, threatening, pressuring, or coercing social media companies in any manner to remove, delete, suppress, or reduce posted content of postings containing free speech. Number seven, taking any such 
any any action such as urging, encouraging um, to reduce content protected free speech by protected by the first uh, the free speech clause of the First Amendment in the United States Constitution. Number eight, uh, following up with social media companies to determine whether the social media companies removed, deleted, suppressed, or reduced previous social media postings containing free speech. So again, not allowed to follow back up with, but that was something that they were doing a lot of. So there was this constant pressure, these emails coming from uh, the Digital Communications Office uh, in the White House, amongst many other agencies. Uh, number nine, requesting content reports from social media companies detailing actions to take, remove, delete, suppress, or reduce content containing free speech, Number 10, notifying social media companies to, quote, be on the lookout, so bolos, uh, for posting containing free speech. And again, this be on the lookout, right? This goes back to like the hack and leak in regards to the Hunter Biden laptop story. So they were saying that you need to be on the lookout. There's probably some Russian disinformation, Hunter Biden, you know, something coming out soon. It was the Hunter Biden laptop story, the New York Post. And you saw what they did with that, right? You couldn't even DM it uh, to anyone. It was getting removed completely. Uh, the preliminary injunction re uh, precludes said named defendants, their agents, officers, employers, contractors, and all acting in concert with the aforementioned. The preliminary injunction also precludes said named defendants, their agents, officers, employees. It is further ordered that the following actions are not prohibited. This is very important because, and I'm going to maybe maybe I'll let Tracy kind of elaborate on this part because this is probably our favorite part of this. At least it was for me. Because this was basically taking the entire government's arguments of why they should be able to censor you, and he carved it out in this injunction. It was actually masterfully done. I don't know if you want to touch on that, Tracy, since you're here, but I know that's our favorite part. <laughs> you know, it was our favorite part, but it's all null and void now anyway. Like, I think you might even be better off just going to what they rewrote everything as, because that's all that really matters at this point. The judge wanted more and the appeals court delivered but he did they didn't deliver a hundred percent no they didn't but that's what i kind of that's the only reason i was going over this for people to know because all of the basically yeah. everything except number six was cut so i guess we'll just go through that then you, you just keep doing whatever you yeah. were doing I, I i'm listening i'm i'm learning again no okay it's fine so this was the carve outs real quick uh these were not prohibited by the injunction and this is important to note because this was the entire government argument uh, they are not prohibited to informing social media companies involving cri criminal activity or criminal conspiracies. Uh, they're of national security threats, extortion, or other threats on the platform. Uh, cyber attacks against election infrastructure or foreign attempts to influence elections. Uh, they were public safety. There was an actual ma matter of public safety. Because what they were saying was we need to be able to talk to our constituents and we need to be able to put messages through social media companies so we can speak to them. And he's saying, yeah, of course, you should be able to do that. That's not a problem. Uh, permiss permissible go public government speech, promoting government policies or views on the matters of public concern. So again, there's that. Uh, posting intended to mislead voters about voting requirements or procedures. Uh, that's that Mackey case, actually. Um, let's see. Uh, so informing social media companies in an effort to detect, prevent, or mitigate malicious cyber activity. And, and again, about deleting, removing, suppressing, or reducing posts on social media platforms that are not protected free speech. And again, he already laid out what's not protected free speech in those beginnings. So um, did you have any like overview thoughts before we get into the to the new uh, the appeal? Well, one in particular, um, the judge in this case <laughs> didn't think that he would have to define what protected free speech was, but the government argued they didn't know. 
and that it was too overbroad. And so they needed a better explanation from the judge of what protected free speech was under the First Amendment. And the judge clarified it for him for them again and then clarified it for them one more time because they still are just too stupid to know. Just ask the New Mexico governor how, how she does with the Constitution. And then they in the appeals court, when they rendered what you're probably about to read in a minute, they made it very clear what protected free speech was in their in their uh, decision. So that would be the only thing I'd add to that, really. All right. Yeah, no, that's it's interesting to note, isn't it? They're like, well, can you tell us? Well, yeah, that's the thing. You should know, number one, being the government. But number two, just like this uh, governor in, in New Mexico, uh, a lot of these people have a firm understanding that these are rights uh, given by government to the people, not protect. These are not protected rights from by the people from the government. And they have a fundamental misunderstanding of how the Constitution even exists. You mean to say by God? That's correct. People. That's correct. You know, Tracy, I think uh, your initial, both of you, Trash, too, were uh, of like, hey, let's get, you know, 48-hour rule. Well, I just finished reading all 74 pages. I'm really not happy with it because they are vacating the ruling on CISA yep. and their ability to work with Election Integrity Partnership, uh, all these um basically uh, these disinformation projects at universities that CISA was doing, and that's vacated. That's uh, bad news because it, they can continue to operate as they were with, you know, uh, Kate Starboard, um, all those people, election and CISA, all that switchboarding activity. They didn't find, in this ruling. They did not find that to be coercive or threatening in any manner. And they also looked at CISA as not which I don't agree with this part since they are under the Department of Homeland Security. So there is some authority there, but they didn't find CISA to have the same authority as like the FBI. And they also found that CISA's uh, communications with the social media platforms were not uh, either overtly or covertly like uh, threatening in any manner as uh, compared to like how the White House was or even the FBI or the CDC. So I'm not happy with this ruling and I, I don't think it's uh, something to be really celebrated. Because well, CISA continues to operate as is. That was my main point when I threaded it out and what I said to Trash 2 along the way is is you're absolutely right on that. However, I'm 70-30 on it, maybe 60-40. 70% happy, 30% disappointed. And the reason why I'm saying I'm happy is because of the precedent that it sets and what it has, what it has said in terms of what the government has done um, for censorship for individual users and trash not to hijack because I'm sure what you had planned to get into this eventually. No, but we're good. Basically, what it's saying for, for from an individual standpoint, if you forget what you just said for a second, number one, previous censorship and then reinstatement is not um, is not something that alleviates the harm that you could that you could face as a user on a platform like this. So in other words, you self-censor when you come back, they're still infringing on your First Amendment right. That's number one. Number two, the court ruled that the government has forever tainted the terms of service and content moderation policies of social media companies for the rest of time because of the threats and coercion from these government agencies to the social media platforms. They will always be thinking about the government cudgel behind them when they craft their TOS, what, how that will be used and what implication it has, 
is going to end up being, you know, for very smart attorneys to capitalize on because it's there now. It's in the record. Um, you know, they, they were very stringent with the White House, but they're correct in saying that there is overt proof for a temporary injunction of coercion by the government when it comes to the FBI, the White House, et cetera. And I understand your law enforcement argument because the FBI, they say they were coercive because they they carry the force of law enforcement. DHS technically has the same thing. And they put a carve out in for CISA too, saying, look, we don't have, this is limited discovery. We don't have anything yet. But based on what we see right now, here is what we think. Now, I said, and Justin Hart disagreed with me vehemently, but I said, what's to stop the White House from going to CISA and just being like, hey, CISA, could you please gently ask the, face, the, the social media companies to ban these people for what they're saying? And then having CISA just follow the same exact model they've been following and have the, whatever censorship taken care of. Let's see if they appeal. That's how we'll know if that's their plan. That, that's why that part bothers me, because uh, anyone following the case and listening to these spaces and following Tracy, CISA this all along was the liaison between social media and the rest of government. So yep. all this uh, ruling does is say, well, there can't be direct. Um, well, actually, it says direct or indirectly. So I wonder if that means that these other agencies cannot talk about this to even CISA. Would that apply here? I, I never read it that way, the way you just said it. Well, that's uh, what the actual modified provision says. It says... Uh, the defendants, which would be the White House, FBI, uh, CDC, Surgeon General, uh, uh, shall take no action, formal or informal, directly or indirectly, to coerce significantly encourage social media, blah, blah, blah. So that I, I would define that that they're not even allowed to indirectly do this, which means go and uh, go to CISA, which CISA. So so basically, the ruling says that CISA has to be the ultimate authority of 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 the messaging to social media. So that's how I would read it. I still am not happy with CISA being able to continue. Though. I 100 percent agree with you. I haven't thought about it like like that. But yes, the way this, it's written. Yes, that's that yeah. sounds like now I guarantee you if, if they don't appeal this to the SCOTUS, I would be stunned. Um, I think they will appeal it if they don't. Oh, for sure. I, yeah, they have, they, they have 10 days. I said that Missouri and Louisiana should be appealing on CISA. That's what I think should happen. Like They in, should. I agree. But they need no more reason. evidence, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see how the record isn't replete. The judge in the 155 pages went insane with references. Um, I guess because they didn't directly say, if you don't do this, then. But if that's the measure we're going by, geez. I, that's, I mean, again. Well, that's, they went into... That's the problem here is because the White House and the other ones, even through their public statements, uh, like by accusing social media of poisoning or killing, these were like, and because they have the uh, authority of the executive branch and how much power, uh, that's why they found well, fault with those, you know, the White House. Well and I think so part of this. OK, so here's I think this is where we get into it, though, because with CISA. So if you if you consider all the evidence that uh, we, we you know, we've, they've gone over all like 20,000 plus documents, whatever they presented in the case, we've kind of looked through and gone over. It was direct emails from, say, you know, field office at FBI, White House, White House, digital communications team, 
these were all direct communications where CISA was a little bit different, right? Because CISA and through the Stanford Internet Observatory and all these other NGOs, they were actually connected to like, say, Twitter's like gyro system. So this was like automated flagging that they were doing. So it wasn't direct communication. And I bet you they just haven't provided enough evidence to show what CISA was doing because they were not, there were some email chains. Sure. We saw there, there were some people within the, uh, within CISA on, on some of these emails, but, but what they're ruling on here in this appeal, what it appears to me is the direct contact, not only by uh, Bebek Mer Mercy, the surgeon general's office, but by the white house, by these people directly, the FBI directly, not the indirect um, like API type connections that they had through these all, all these social media companies or these meetings that they were having with the execs at Meta or Twitter or Instagram or whatever. They were showing more direct communications. And I think I think that's why they were able to leave uh, CISA out of it. See, because like as an example, so if you look at part D, um, and it says, finally, we briefly discussed the remaining offices, namely the NIAID, CISA, and the State Department. Generally speaking, the NIAID did not have regular contact with the platforms or flag content. Instead, the NIAID officials were, as evidenced by internal emails, concerned with, quote, taking down opposing scientific or policy views. On that front, Director Anthony Fauci publicly spoke in favor of certain ideas, i.e., you know, COVID lockdowns, and against others, example of a lab leak theory. In doing so, NIAID officials appeared on podcasts and live streams on some of the platforms. Apparently, the platform subsequently demoted posts that echoed or supported the discredited views. CISA and the State Department, on the other hand, both communicated directly with the platforms. The State Department hosted meetings uh, where they were meant to facilitate communication with the platforms. In those meetings, they educated the platforms on the, quote, tools and techniques that malign or foreign propaganda actors, i.e. terrorists, so on and so forth, would use. So this is important to note because what they're saying here is that, yes, they did have these meetings. However, they were not directly telling them what to take down, so on and so forth, rather giving them tools and, and techniques and algorithms and everything else. It's what they're saying here in this, in this opinion. So maybe that's why. Yes, um, except, you know, despite what you're saying and otherwise showing a very firm understanding of the record, that isn't all that CISA was doing. Correct. And <laughs> yeah, so but but the record shows that already. So uh, that's the thing that's concerning about it. But again, to get a temporary injunction at all is such an overwhelming um, task it's almost it's almost never done. And when it is done, it almost never survives an appeal. So the fact that we're even here today talking about this oh, is yeah. very it, it's huge. It really is. And so when I first read it, like you name, I said the same exact thing. I, I was going around to and, and trash you and I were talking about it, too. Like, stop jumping up and down like this is the end all be all because it really isn't everything that we want. And it's I, it's damning that CISA can continue. It, it is. You can't sugarcoat that. However, what you just said is also, I would say, 90% of the of, of the record that's been presented so far. So, Yeah. And again, keep in mind, guys, this is not the trial. I mean, I want to be very clear on what this is, right? This is just enough evidence to gather to warrant a temporary injunction while the case continues on to trial. So, you know, they can only gather so much or think together so much or pour through 20,000 plus documents, not having enough pressure to get more information. They thought they had enough here to present it. And so this will continue on. This is not the end. 
And again, I, like you guys said, I, I believe it's also going to SCOTUS. That was my first comment, if you guys noticed. The first person I saw a post about this was Justin Hart, I think on Friday. And I immediately said, hey, uh, I'm not done reading all this, but not all of this looks so good. Look, let's, let's pump our brakes here. But on Andrew Bailey's post, he had every right. I think I saw his the second. And he had every right to celebrate because, again, like to your point, Tracy, he didn't think it would get this far, right? And so he had every reason to celebrate and, you know, keep people motivated and supportive behind him. And that's why I made a comment on that thread. I said, you know, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see where this goes in appeal. Uh, what I meant by that was SCOTUS. So I think we're not we're not done with this appeal yet. But yeah, this is this is the part that I think all three of us were like, damn, Cease is getting out of this. <laughs> so. Yeah. And the other thing to note, too, is that in the discovery and you've done such a, a freaking amazing job on this, Trash, um, the, the discovery only came from the government defendants. Now they're out getting discovery from Facebook and from Meta, I mean, and from um, Instagram and from Twitter and from YouTube. They're getting discovery from the non-party, uh, I don't know, uh, the non-parties. We'll just call them non-parties because that's what they are. So that, that, that's going to, like, look what happened with Jordan and uh, Facebook. They subpoenaed Facebook, Facebook dumped. We got so much more proving that there was this encroachment. And the reason that that's important is Jim Jordan and Congress entered a friend of the court brief in this appeal before the hearing happened and put that stuff on the record. And so if you listen to the oral arguments, you heard the government arguing that that can't be included. The judges specifically asked, can we take this record as part of the, um, you know, factual information in this case and the government was arguing against it because they didn't want the court to be able to look at the meta emails and then use them to come to a decision in this case but they did inform their decision because every friend of the court brief will in a case like this if it's allowed so yeah yeah this is just nuts i'm, lo I'm looking through it more. I, I think uh i don't know what uh bailey's said but they sh they should appeal this to the supreme court and I would be surprised if um, the government doesn't appeal it as well. If the government does, if the government doesn't appeal it, they come up with another solution, and they don't care. That's that's my thing here. If if the the attorneys who are absolutely brilliant, John Sauer and all the guys over in Louisiana, and all of the attorneys that are on this case for the plaintiffs are amazing. They're going to probably weigh the risk versus reward for appealing this themselves. Um, and, and come to a decision. If they decide not to appeal, it's probably because they viewed the risk of, of appealing as more of a detriment to their case than the reward could possibly be. Well, I guess, I mean, look, this, this doesn't let, so to be clear, I guess, okay, this doesn't let CISA off the hook, okay? This is just an injunction to get them to stop what they're doing while this case plays out. So, you know, Right, Tracy? Is that correct? Yeah. 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 So, but it just stops the White House. But basically, the again, Tracy, go to page um, 70 and just read the modified provision six. The way I look at it is that White House or FBI can't even go to CISA. So it, it, it is good in that part, but it just is bad in that CISA can continue operating as it has been. But it also doesn't let them off the hook for what they did. And that'll just come out through the trial. Um, 
But I do, let me get into this real quick so people understand why we're harping about CISA so much. So, uh, and again, on this tweet here, I think you put it well. State Department didn't flag content, but CISA did, acting as an intermediary for third-party groups and then switchboarding, as I was mentioning earlier and explaining, based off of uh, the Ele Election Integrity Partnership and the Center for Internet Security, CIS. The official's, quote, actions apparently led to content being removed or demoted by recent uh, recipient platforms. So CISA, however, did flag content. Beyond holding regular industry meetings with the platforms, CISA officials engaged in switchboarding operations, meaning they acted as an intermediary for third-party group by forwarding flagged content from the, from them to the platforms. For example, during a federal election, CISA officials would receive, quote, something on social media that local election officials deemed to be disinformation aimed at their jurisdiction, end quote. And in turn, CISA would, quote, share that with the appropriate social media company. In switchboarding, uh, CISA officials worked alongside the Center for Internet Security, Election Integrity Partnership, it's not project, uh, two private organizations. The officials' actions apparently led to content being removed or demoted demoted by recipient platforms. So again, I mean, CISA, we know this, right? We've covered this many times and covered CISA for many reasons, uh, not just in this case, although this case is addressing those reasons that we've been covering it, but that they were, they were switchboarding. And, and again, just to remind everybody what they were switchboarding, it wasn't just like local official precincts. It wasn't just the, uh, it wasn't just various health groups and NGOs. It wasn't just the Stanford Internet Observatory Election Integrity Partnership Virality Project. It was also the Global Engagement Center. And the Global Engagement Center was uh, nine different governmental agencies and organizations that basically any request that they had, they would filter all these tranches of accounts or posts through the Global Engagement Center. Global Engagement Center would then feed into CISA. CISA would switchboard to the various uh, to the various social media companies to get the content taken down, demoted, deprioritized, or get accounts completely removed, or call Tracy uh, Tracy a Russian asset. So, so one thing to add to that trash is this ruling. Uh, it uh, reversed uh, the decision, basically saying that you know NIAID where Fauci was, the State Department, which would include the Global Engagement Center, and CISA did not coerce. So when they modified uh, the the provision six. Uh, global engagement or State Department pretty much is not included. So that can continue. Like they're, they're allowed to continue talking to CISA, but the White House and FBI are not. Um, and just so you know, Trash, I say project every time and nobody can change my my habit. So I say project every time, even though it's not project. And as a matter of fact, I was going to correct somebody who said what is it? Partnership? What is it? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to correct someone who said that. <laughs> and I was like, wait a second, I'm wrong. So <laughs> I typed it that way hundreds of times. Uh, I, I've, I've gone back 50-50. I've just forced myself to make sure that I'm accurate when I when I say it <laughs> because uh, I, I was doing it for a while, too. And I was like, wait, no, it's partnership. Not that that really matters. It's semantics, but I'm just I'm trying to be precise. <laughs> so, yeah. Either way, it's the same thing. It's EIP that became Virality Project those assholes out there from uh, Stanford Internet Observatory, Alex Stamos, all those fun people. Oh, yeah, CIA, Renee DiResta, all those fun people. Um, now, this is interesting here. You said that another huge precedent was that, right? So the, the past chilling of their speech has caused individuals to self-censor. This is very important. Uh, that is considered ongoing harm. This is a massive and very important section. I'm going to read it because it is very important. 
the self-censoring part is is very important. Somebody asked on Friday, I think it was Catherine Brodsky. She says, why are why are people on like YouTube and Twitter saying unaliving or unalived instead of killed or suicide or whatever? It's because those words specifically trigger within algorithms. Um, YouTube channels can get demonetized if they say say suicide or killed or whatever, as opposed to unalived or unaliving. Um, so that is a self-censor that not only just has like personal censorship ramifications, but it actually has monetary ramifications. And so this is very important because this is chilling speech, right? This is how this, the social media companies are chilling speech. They're saying all five individual plaintiffs have stated in sworn declarations that their prior censorship has caused them to self-censor and carefully, world, carefully word social media posts moving forward in hopes of avoiding suspensions, bans, and censorship in the future. So instead of calling it a vaccine, calling it the jab or the poke, right? That's another example of this. Koldorf, for example, explained that he now, quote, restricts what he says on social media platforms to avoid suspension and other penalties. Uh, this is Cariotti, so that's Aaron Cariotti, by the way. He's one of the plaintiffs in this case. Described how he now must be, quote, extremely careful when posting any information on Twitter re related to vaccines to avoid getting banned, and that he intentionally limits what he says publicly, even on topics where he has specific scientific and ethical expertise and professional experience. And Hoff notes, that's Jim Hoff, the Gateway Pundit, Hoff notes that to avoid suspension and other forms of censorship, his website, which is Gateway Pundit, uh, frequently avoids posting content that it would otherwise post on social media platforms and frequently alter content to make it less likely to trigger censorship policies. These lingering effects of past censorship must be factored into the standing calculus. Um, I will say, to, to, to the credit of the court uh, that issued this appeal, they were very specific with uh, citing citations and cases. I've seen appeals where they're just garbage. They didn't they didn't do anything like that. I don't know what you thought about that, guys, but well, that's huge because what they're trying to do is make it SCOTUS uh ready. Yep. Um, which is why I think it took them so long to come up with it. And their interpretation of those cases forever changes how those cases are viewed. Um, and so this is a precedent setting thing, which is why I gave it the 70% I did, because the words and concepts and things that they're saying in here are going to filter down to people all over the place. Like I specifically reached out to Rogan because uh, DC Drano, because yeah. I wanted him to see this. His case is referenced several times. Now he's so he sued Twitter directly and the courts make a very, the court makes a very important distinction over and over again. This is not somebody suing a social media company for their TOS. This is somebody suing the government for forcing a TOS, but that will help him in his case because now he can argue that the, so he almost in, in favor of Twitter, they were working because they were being threatened by the government. Now, whether that means he now has to sue the government, I'm not sure, but there's a lot in here. And the way that they wrote this, um, I don't want to say it's an opinion because it's not decision um, is, is really beneficial for everybody, honestly. Yeah. I mean, they go for 50 pages or 40 pages out of the 74 is literally using case law to come up with what now this is case law that for what uh, uh, even over encouraging or uh, what could what could define as pressure. Right. And they just they go really into the weeds and how they describe that, um, whether it's overt, covert, implied, 
um, an implied or else, like they really get into a lot of examples from each agency. Yeah. And it's the definition of words at the end of the day is what this is about. It really is the definition of words and how those words are then applied to uh, the law. And that's the legal theory portion of this, which is so important because there are other cases like this where there have been, you know, implied government threats that have not survived the scrutiny test that this court has put on what the government did in these cases. And they even take into consideration the tone and the tenor of, of specifically the emails from Flaherty to Facebook, um, how many times he followed up, what kind of demands were made, flouting the office of the president at them. So this is really, it, it's so important that um, I, don't, I don't think very many people understand how important this is moving forward in a social media world. Well, this is going to be a messy case. It's going to drag on. And out of this case, there are going to be numerous lawsuits. There's going to be lawsuits against uh, because of this decision. There's going to be lawsuits against the social media companies because this decision found that the FBI, uh, at least the FBI and the CDC, at least I don't remember the other ones. I'm not looking at the computer, but they were involved in uh, basically changing uh, terms of service at the social media companies to add uh, violations such as hack and leak, for instance. Um, so anyone, you know, this court didn't rule that those terms of service need to be changed, but they're still there today. And that's where we're, why we're at this issue with self-censorship and further injury, you know? Yep. Sorry, I couldn't I couldn't unmute. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. And again, to remind people, Tracy brought up Flaherty. Rob Flaherty was the uh, director of the digital communications, uh, the White House under Biden's administration. He was the bulldog. Right. So this is the guy. And it was well known and it's documented throughout the case. I highly recommend going back and looking at phone call. I highly recommend going back and look at Tracy's reporting on this, at least the threads, uh, because it does show it has you know the cutouts, the quotes, the emails from Rob Flaherty, and then, you know, subsequently Andy Slavitt. Uh, but he was the bulldog. He, th- he was threatening, you know, coercing. It seemed to be that Google and YouTube were probably the easiest. They were automatic in this. It seemed like Twitter was probably the most, the pushback the most. Uh, they're trying to paint the picture as if Facebook or Meta tried to a little bit, but that's all BS. Um, to an ex- I mean, to an extent, but, but YouTube and Google were probably the most egregious. And and they did. They made these changes and had them done to TOS. Uh, but again, this, as you pointed out here, Tracy, in this next paragraph about the chilling of individual plaintiff speech, and to your point name, this is going to be very useful, number one, for SCOTUS, as you mentioned, but number two, for other people's cases, it's very important, and they're citing these. And I, I'm going to read this paragraph. It's super, super important. So again, as the Supreme Court has recognized, this chilling of individual plaintiffs' exercise of their First Amendment rights is itself a constitutionally sufficient injury. So this is regarding standing. This is this is very, very important because this is why I did not get thrown out on standing and they were using this. Uh, Laird v. Tatum, uh, in 1972, actually, true, quote, to confer standing, allegations of chilled speech or self-censorship must arise from a fear of future harm that is not imaginary or wholly speculative. Well, we've demonstrated in many, many instances that it, that it, in fact, it was absolutely of, of a future harm and it was not imaginary or speculative. Uh, even, uh, I believe it was Alex Berenson's case demonstrated that against Twitter. Uh, 
Well, the government uh, tried to argue here or the lawyers on behalf of the defendants tried to argue that, oh, well, since these people's accounts were unsuspended and they're back on the platform, then, you know, there's no further harm. Well, yeah, that's not true. That's not true. They actually said the opposite. They said the court said since they are back on the platform, they do have the potential to suffer ongoing harm because the platforms at your behest can just do this to them again. And also they're self-censoring. So what I I meant, Tracy, is the government tried to argue that there's no further harm because they were unbanned. Yeah, I probably misspoke. What I meant to say is that the court came back and told them actually the opposite is true because they're back on and they can be censored again because you're still doing this, even though you say these platforms aren't still, you know, um, enforcing the COVID misinformation policy, for example, that there's nothing stopping there's nothing stopping this from happening to them again. So, yeah, now they actually cite the case here and they're saying this is the case from 2018 of Zimmerman versus Austin, Texas. Uh, they're saying internal quotation marks. OK, a plaintiff's quote cannot manufacture standing merely by inflicting harm on themselves based on their own fears of hypothetical future harm. But the fears motivating the individual plaintiff's self-censorship here are far from hypothetical. Rather, they are grounded in very real censorship injuries and they have previously suffered to their speech on social media, which are evidence of the likelihood of a future injury, like just what Tracy spoke right there. And so that that was a very, very important part uh, of this of this uh, uh, decision. So and again, so I'm going to point this out for the recording if everybody's listening. This is the part where name was talking about this and I was kind of talking about this. You say, Tracy, you said that here is something anyone who's considering any sort of lawsuit needs to consider. The court here aptly notes that plaintiffs aren't suing the platforms over the terms of service. They are suing to stop the government from interfering with platforms. Also, the government admitted in oral argument that they are still in contact with these platforms today. Uh, so basically, the court does not trust, doesn't trust that the government isn't still forcing social media companies to censor. And that part of that's decisions right in here. So. Let's see. We kind of covered this. There's the Hunter Biden laptop story, right? The hack and leak. We've covered the kind of the COVID-19, their justifications of this, what, you know, such as Facebook and YouTube are doing, where they're still enforcing COVID or health specific information policy today. Uh, This is also part of the reason if you guys, I don't know if you guys realize this or not. uh, Just recently, within the last couple of months, YouTube has dropped um, their questioning of the election and part of their terms of service as a bannable offense and uh, COVID vaccine hesitancy from their terms of service as a bannable offense. They've dropped both of those from their policies within the last two months. I just think it's interesting because this, uh, this appeal came out after they changed it. So they knew it was coming. It said plaintiffs use social media platforms other than Twitter, such as Facebook and YouTube, which still enforce COVID or health specific misinformation policies. And most fundamentally, the individual plaintiffs are not seeking to enjoin Twitter's content moderation policies or any of those a social media platform for that matter rather plaintiffs uh, plaintiffs counsel made clear at oral argument what the individual plaintiffs are challenging is the government's interference um the government's interference with those social media companies independent application of their policies so they're saying they're not saying and this was rightly so and smart because these these uh these platforms were simply uh, they're not part of like it's not a direct lawsuit on these on these platforms so i think this was a smart avenue to take and saying listen we're not challenging individual companies terms of service what we're saying is that the government 
has been overreaching and and pressuring these companies to do that and make these changes. So it's the government's overreach that we want to stop here. I don't know if you guys have comments on that or. No, it's a hundred percent true. And again, I, 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 the social media companies are probably dying for some kind of an out here. Honestly, um, they're probably very excited that this ruling came down this way um, because it removes liability from them for a lot of the decisions they've made over the past goodness knows how long. And it's going to be so interesting to see how that plays out in court across the country, especially in ongoing lawsuits right now. Yeah, I mean, the court or, or this ruling, you know, spelled it out. I mean, that's just what they do, basically, that the government can't uh, violate the First Amendment, but a private party is not ordinarily constrained by the First Amendment. However, if a private party is coerced or significantly encouraged by the government to such a degree that its choice would be unconstitutional. So this ruling found that the actions of the platforms must in law be deemed to be that of the state. So they basically just ruled that the social media platforms are acting as the government. Yes. Which... So I don't know how that lets the social media platforms off the hook for further damp or for you know lawsuits in the future. But, um, and even if they come out and roll back their terms of service, then it's like an admission. So I don't know really what they're going to do. I mean, I know Elon took off all the COVID stuff on this platform or he said he did, but I don't know what the other ones are going to do. I know they've done some, but I don't know. Yep. Yep. No, that's true. Uh, so uh, real quick, let me get, uh, I'll keep going here because this is actually important as well. <laughs> Tracy said, this is grand. <laughs> I agree. Uh, government argued that just because users had been reinstated all as well. Well, the court rightly says no. The fact that they were reinstated is what causes the threat of ongoing harm. If they didn't have an account, uh, they wouldn't have to worry about censorship because they wouldn't be able to post. Of course. Let me read how they put this because this is actually very, very important. The officials also contend that future harm is unlikely. This is government argues that future harm is unlikely because, quote, all three plaintiffs who suggested their social media accounts have been permanently suspended now appear to have active accounts. But as Ninth Circuit recently recognized, the facts weigh in plaintiff's favor. This is regard. This is D.C. Drano's case. Um, considering this issue in context of readdressability, the Ninth Circuit explained until recently it was doubtful whether or not injunctive relief would remedy the plaintiff's alleged injuries because Twitter had permanently suspended his account. And the requested uh, injunction against government imposed social media censorship would not change that fact. Those doubts disappeared December 2022 when Twitter restored his account. The same logic also applies here. If the individual plaintiffs did not currently have active social media accounts, then there would be no risk for future censorship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's interesting that they even included. So did they I didn't I guess I didn't see that because he's not he's not a plaintiff in this case, is he, Tracy? Nope, he's not. But they just submitted it as, as like evidence for the they used it for precedent, how the courts have ruled in his case. And, and he's appealing all the way to the SCOTUS, by the way. Um, but, yeah, they used his case quite a bit to show how other courts have determined um, the opposite of what he wanted. But went in favor of the plaintiffs in this case. It's interesting, isn't it? It is. It's very interesting, actually. Uh, and good news for him. So you guys can kind of go through this again. Uh, I've only got Tracy for a little bit here. I know you got to jump off in a couple in a few minutes or 30 minutes or so. 
I have until around 2.45, at which point I must become a mom. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I'm looking also, I'm looking for questions down here while I keep going because I do want to kind of go through this. I'm looking for any questions. I'm not seeing anybody. If you guys have any questions, uh, please put them down there in the chat. Somebody had asked, how does the location of Missouri help or hurt this case? So the case is actually being uh, litigated in Louisiana under uh, Terry Doty. And it's very good because the judge is pretty based. I mean, he even re he released his uh, decision on the injunction on July 4th. Like <laughs> this dude, and he's not taking any, he's not taking any shit either. I mean, he's, he's been really good so far. Uh, a couple other questions regarding this is, looks like they want to take it to Supreme court. Yes, that's correct. Uh, the appellants request to extend the administrative stay for 10 days following the date here of pending an application to the Supreme court. Yeah. So that's, they're well aware and they want to, they want to take it to the Supreme court. So, um, but this is where we're kind of at right now. I didn't see, I didn't see more here. So now this Tracy, you're saying, and that's very important part of the first amendment that often goes undiscussed the right to listen. This is something that I believe Landry brought up in your interview. Yes, sir. Yes. And it was great. Um, it's so true. Yeah. If you guys don't know, I mentioned at the beginning of the space, uh, Jeff Landry, who's the attorney general out of Louisiana, probably going to be the next governor of Louisiana. This dude is a rock star, by the way. Love that man. Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> but he did. He brought this up. And I know that's why it's in the case. He said, you know, the right to listen. Constituent plaintiffs were harmed by the censorship of their elected representatives. And the elected representatives in states are harmed when they cannot hear their constituents. This was discussed. Oh, yeah. Duh. Discussed at great length in the interview, Jeff Land. Okay, perfect. So at least my brain's working correctly. Uh, so here we go. Plaintiffs sustain a direct injury when the social media accounts of a state officials are censored due to federal coercion. Federally coerced censorship harms the state plaintiff's ability to listen to their citizens as well. The right to listen is reciprocal to the state plaintiff's right to speak in constituents and an independent basis for the state plaintiff's standing here. They cite the case. Again, brilliant. Thank you, guys. Um, so, again, it's not just the right to listen as in the as in the local governments have a right to listen to their constituents, but it's also the people listening to this space right now. You have a right to listen as a protected First Amendment speech to listen to what we're saying here, to read what other what other people's free speech are. That is just as much as protected under the First Amendment as you being able to speak it, your ability to hear it. And I, again, if you guys haven't seen it, go to Uncovered DC's uh, Rumble channel. I already linked the Bailey interview. Go watch the Jeff Landry interview. He's he's pretty awesome. Was that the speech or was that the was was that the the interview? Um, what do you mean? Well, because I remember listening to it. I can't remember if it was the space or if it was. The... Oh, no, it was. He Bailey did the space. Landry did just an interview that, and we that. had technical difficulties and he blamed it on the government. It was so funny. I remember. Um, it's, yeah, it's actually linked in that tweet that I, I put the the in the beginning of the thread. I put a tweet and I said I had the pleasure of interviewing Landry and Bailey and both of them are linked there if anyone's interested. It's, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes long. It's worth the listen. It's really great. And his accent just blows me away. <laughs> um, man has a great, like, he sounded to me like he was from Brooklyn. And apparently that's a real common thing. Like uh, people who are from like the deep south New Orleans sound like they're from Brooklyn to some people. And I grew up there. So I was like, wow, this is weird. So Tracy, I, I didn't listen to the interview yet, but are they um, expecting a appeal by the government? Yes, to I took this interview I did with 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 uh, Jeff Landry was the day of the oral arguments, and um, yeah, he said that they're they're expecting that the government will appeal if they if they lose. All right, so 
either the Supreme Court takes it up or they deny the appeal and then this is the this is it. And then the the case goes on. Yeah. Trial. Yeah. It's going to drag on for another year. Well, that's why the injunction was so important. That's why they wanted the injunction. Exactly, because the the case is going to go on forever and they do not want in between uh, the opinion and decision and appeal of this case, the government to be able to do what it's what it was doing that they clearly outlined. That's why the emergency injunction with the expedited discovery was so important. Yeah, well, the CISA ruling, again, this is why I don't know what what I mean. Okay, maybe there's 30 percent good, but CISA was the main apparatus of this whole thing. As far as getting all the why twenty two million tweets were suspended or whatever, that's all. All that stuff was through CISA. The pressure and the threats and whatnot uh, were White House, FBI, to, to an extent. But C- the main amount of censoring was done through CISA, and that is allowed to continue. And um, that means Renee and uh, Kate Starboard—they're all still in business. They can keep getting grants and doing these projects funneling uh, these reports to CISA, um, which is funded by, um, you know, most of these outsider groups are getting funding through uh, government grants to some extent. And that's why this is the part I'm disappointed about that that's going to continue. And I don't know. Not happy about it. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there's going to be an ongoing deal. It just depends on the platforms. I mean, like, I don't think anybody's confused at this point whether or not they have free speech on on Facebook or Instagram. Here, it's marginally better. Uh, in many ways, it's a lot better, but it's marginally at best better here. Obviously, there's other tools at work, and they're trying to, you know, we've, we've seen the attacks through, you know, ADL and the other advertising apparatus, the Nandini Jammies of the world who are attacking advertisers and ad revenue and spend. So that's become a problem here on Twitter. Um, but overall, I'd say Twitter is probably the most free uh, of, of consequential platforms. I mean, there's other platforms out there that are free speech, but of consequential platforms, I'd say Twitter is still at least we're up there. But no, no, no. I mean, CISA has not been involved with this at all. It's going to continue on. Uh, we have our other fights name when we're talking about the NDAA and how they're going to even further industrialize the censorship apparatus through an actual spending bill through the Congress, but that's another space for another time. Right now, I'm going over this case, but I just wanted to kind of mention that here. This is what I want to point out. So we've been talking about injunction, injunction, injunction. Those of you that may not be uh, well-versed in this, let me explain. So Tracy does a great job here in explaining, and the court does too. So the court explains on section four on page 27, they're explaining the bar that you have to hit to even be granted an injunction, right? So number one, you're likely to succeed on the merits of your case. So if you're granted the injunction, you're likely to succeed on the succeed on the merit of the case, right? That's that's great. Number two, there's quote a substantial threat that you will suffer irreparable inner, inner, injury without it. Agreed. Even the uh, fifth district, uh, fifth circuit here has demonstrated that. Uh, number three, the injury c- you could sustain outweighs whatever harm the injunction could cause the other side. And number four, that the injunction does not disserve the public interest, which it does not. Now, it may it may disserve the government's interest, but that's not the point here. And that's not what the point of the Constitution is either. So and this is what they said. They said a party seeking a preliminary injunction must establish that they are likely to succeed on the merits, that there's a substantial threat that they will suffer irreparable energy. Otherwise, the uh, potential injury outweighs the harm that will result. And on the other side, an injunction will not disturb the public interest. It's very, very important. 
And you say here, frame this. So, quote, the plaintiffs allege that federal officials ran afoul of the First Amendment by coercing and significantly encouraging social media platforms to censor disfavored speech, including by threats of adverse government action like antitrust enforcement and legal reforms. So to be clear, they 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 threatened the protections under Section 230. Right. They would bring these these companies into antitrust litigation. So they threatened them. In, in, in several different ways, not basically like the old mafia. This is the way I like to explain it to people. It's like the old mafia insurance pitch. Boy, it really would be a shame if this place burnt down, you know, suggesting that if you don't do what I tell you, I'm going to burn it down. And so it's that's what the government did here. They, they were strong arming these companies. They 100% were. Now, were a lot of these people, individuals within these companies, happy to do it? Yeah, you bet. There was a lot of ideologues that were working within these companies. And just the thought of them LARPing and, you know, conversing with government officials and the FBI and how cool is this? I mean, we saw it in the Twitter files. Yoel Roth, uh, had, you know, from Twitter was so excited. He had his meetings. He had his covert meetings with the FBI and the government. I mean, these people were ridiculous. But overall, this well, there was plenty of evidence to suggest that it was 100% strong arming. Uh, See, in- the issue I have with this is that if they are, if this court um uh gives an opinion where they find that the white house or the fbi basically that the executive branch was doing this then cisa should just automatically fall under this like i i don't know why they're like just saying that cisa's conduct falls under quote attempts to convince or not not coerce and there were no threats and that there were just simply their requests weren't threatening. But I just don't agree with the ruling. I'm not a lawyer, but CISA is under the DHS, which is inside the executive uh, department. So or the executive branch. So if they're going to apply or, or you know, tell the White House and FBI they cannot be doing this, CISA should just be included in that. It should just apply to the executive branch. You guys understand the the logic there? It just doesn't make sense because the White House or the FBI can sort of be the bully and CISA is just sort of doing all the menial, like, um, you know, analyst work and just giving them the info. So I'm not, I'm not happy with that. And no, I, I don't. I mean, if this is uh if the Supreme Court hears this, then I hope that um, the attorney generals can come up with a better argument to even reverse the ruling on CISA just because they fall under the executive branch. So if they're going to basically say that the executive branch or these officials are prohibited from this behavior, well, then any part of their that branch should just fall under that ruling. They kind of do address it here a little bit. Um, you got to kind of skip down a little bit in the thread, but obviously, like Tracy said, we have clear coercion in the case. But the court continues its analysis because this isn't this is going to SCOTUS. It is important that he needs to be very well settled when it gets there. So, what they're talking about here with the Second Circuit um, is this: they said the Second Circuit starts with the premise that a government message is coercive as opposed to persuasive. If it can, quote, reasonably interpreted as in, uh, in intimating that some form of punishment 
or adverse regulatory action will follow the failure to accede the official's request. So this might also explain why they're not including it in there as well, because CISA does not have that kind of authority. So I, I don't know. Uh, maybe that's, this is right in here is where they're, because they're, because obviously they're setting it up for SCOTUS. That's what they're doing here. That's why they're citing all these different cases, but maybe they're just, they can't find a precedent for it. I mean, it is unprecedented what's going on, but I, I just don't know. I don't know if they got pressure and they just said, well, we'll figure out a way around and getting you out of it. I'm not sure, but because it looks like they keep focusing on, um, like I said, the white house, Rob Flaherty and, and the direct authority basically. So CISA does not have direct authority. They simply have suggestion. And I think that's where this is falling. Correct me if I'm wrong, Tracy, but I think that's. Yeah. See, I, I mean, that's what they said, but see, they are a enforcement or, or they work under an enforcement uh, division, the department of Homeland security. So if they're going to rule that the FBI, you know, maybe they weren't as coercive or threatening with their language, but I don't know. A lot of the things they apply to why the FBI or the White House has authority to do things would definitely also apply to CISA and the Department of Homeland Security. So letting them off the hook here. uh, We have the CISA expert down here. You see, Mike is in the space. You can come you can come up if you want to talk, Mike. Is Ben's here? Yeah. Yeah, I'll see people come up. But yeah, I mean, I mean, they Sissa was doing all the dirty work here. I mean, it's just the way it is. Mike knows that better. He'll let him talk. hear me. Oh, what up? Uh, I'm going on like one hour of sleep right now, but uh, I'm just just listening. Uh, you guys are, are are speaking all the keywords that that light up my dopamine system. So, uh, but I was just just listening and learning from from Tracy. Tracy, you've been doing an incredible job with. Um, you know, uh, shortcutting, having to take a fine to comb for a lot of folks who don't exactly find judicial rulings to be Melville in terms of their pros. But um, so you're, you're doing an incredible service and I think we all appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mike. It's appreciated from you. And, you know, look, at the end of the day, I am with name on this. I'm not 30% positive. I'm, I'm, like I said, 60 or 70% because of the rest of the implications here. But not including CISA in this because they're not coercive enough. What he's saying is true. They are under the Department of Homeland Security. That is a, quote, law enforcement organization. No, I mean, I, I, he's right on that. I didn't think about it like that either, which is always why I love to pour things over with as many people as I can in, in conversations like this. I just I they're they're the the most evil out of all of them. Yeah, the White House was really bad. Of course, the FBI was terrible. The Surgeon General's office was no better when it came to. I mean, think of all the people who lost their lives because of the propaganda that was pushed out to the American people completely inorganically, which is another thing that the court brought brought up a bunch that state. I was just on with Emerald and Emerald said this propaganda. The, the, the platforms were threatened into propaganda or else, like amplify this government message inorganically so more people see it or else we will do X, Y, and Z to you. So it's, it's there's so, and, and for the court to note that is, is just, it's stunning. It, it's unprecedented for a court to be this accommodating to 
the truth lately. So, well, can I go off for just like uh, a minute? I, my brain power is at a pretty low level right now, just because I've just had a, a wild like twenty four forty eight hours here. But um, can I just give my my take on it? Is that yeah, yeah, we want we want you yeah, to. Yeah, just Please before do. I want to read this section where they talk about the FBI and why would this not apply to the Department of Homeland Security? This is what it says. This is especially true of the lead law enforcement, investigatory, and domestic security agency for the executive branch. So, F, you know, DHS falls under that as well. Go ahead, Mike. All right. So, I have a bad news a neutral news and a good news take on this. And I'll start with the bad news, which is uh, on the CISA EIP censorship octopus uh, situation here. You know, it's from the lawyer's perspective, uh, the, the facts of a case often make law almost more than, principle that is if you have a really gross set of facts on your side you can often achieve a hugely favorable legal precedent even if it wouldn't hold up in most situations and so the precedent will last for a long time until another case with better facts come around i am afraid and uh, I won't lie, I'm slightly depressed when I think about how we will likely never have a better fact pattern than what we currently have on CISA for any government censorship activity from now until the end of time. They got busted dead to rights saying they only set up EIP to fill the gaps of what the government could not do itself. And EIP was stupid enough to put in writing in a big, fat operational timeline infographic, then presenting to the fucking federal government their idea for serving as their their censorship cutout. Most people are not this stupid or sloppy. And with all the heat that's been generated in the past 18 months on this, they're not going to do that again. This, if, if, if we don't win on the CISA issue in this case, it's going to be buried forever. That is, though, they will always, if, if EIP can't get uh, brutalized in this decision as a CISA cutout, then nobody's a cutout. You understand what I'm saying here? Yeah, there's oh, another yes. case too, Mike. That's there's exactly another- my issue with it, Mike. There's another case too, though, Mike. There's another case against them specifically yeah, as plain the America First legal one, right? And it's and it's and it's being brought in the same jurisdiction uh, with in the same courtroom. Yes. yes, right. So now this sort of moves me on to my like medium neutral, my my like lukewarm take, uh, which is look, judges are political animals, especially appellate court judges. They, there's all, you know, that, that is a, that is a hard striver political job. Uh, and how well you do for the establishment backers who are in charge of your promotions and your career from there, uh, is, is determined by how you rule in your cases. 
Judge Terry Dowdy was – am I saying that right? Is it Dowdy or Doty? Yeah, Doty yeah. Dowdy. Yeah. Either way. Uh, was a fucking saint, a hero. You know, the, the, the guy who kicked down, you know, a, a, a door. He's the first person through it in the SWAT team, even though he's going to catch the fire for it. Uh, what he did was principled, and I – was surprised to see somebody willing to in the judicial system willing to i mean this would be like a judge ruling against the fbi in a marquee criminal case you're you're going against the government but the government is i don't know if that's true it it takes brass balls to do that um wouldn't and i uh let's let's go to eric thank you i'm hopeful that because this is a a this is still just a hearing on the preliminary uh, on a preliminary injunction. They still don't have full marriage discovery, right? Like, so there's a lot of baseball left to play in this. I suspect that leaving CISA out, especially because CISA is so critical for the 2024 election, critical in, a, in an evil way, I mean, that this was, uh, this was them saying, listen, we're sending a message. We're, we're saying, you know, bad, bad FBI, bad White House, bad, you know, CDC. Uh, but leaving, yeah, I, and I, I read the ruling, not with a super fine tooth comb, but I, I remember seeing something in the sort of tonality or diction they selected to, to leave, leave open the possibility that CISA in the end would be subject. Yes. And, but that they were sort of waiting for more evidence. So, so I take that as them saying, "Listen, uh, Dowdy, we agree with you, bro. Uh, this this case is super foobar. But uh, hey, Biden administration, don't kill us. Um, you know, don't don't try to get us impeached or have the Justice Department. Yeah, there's especially because the 2024 election is going to play out." I mean, CISA's, CISA's job under the Biden administration, their whole raison d'etre is like election shit. And for them to be, I still think there's going to be heat on them from this because the more they do uh, uh, in the next 12 months, the, everything they do, first of all, I'm going to be up their ass for everything they do. And that's going to find its way into motions from you know, the state attorney general's offices. So I still think there's, there's still something uh, effective. That, but, I, but I think having the semblance of a back and forth uh, creates a sort of legitimacy record. I think in the back of their minds, they're hopeful that SCOTUS or, uh, or somebody who, with career security will ultimately deem CISA to have been in violation of the First Amendment, but they don't want to make the call because they don't have that kind of job security that a SCOTUS judge does. Uh, that's the way yeah. it is to me. Yeah, and there's also ongoing discovery throughout this period. So this is going to be under the microscope the entire time for consistent production. So you're 100% right with what you're saying, yes. Well, they're going to have to, as the case goes on, and, and hopefully if it, you know, if the Supreme Court hears this, I would uh, assume that uh, Bailey is going to argue that CISA should just be part of the ruling because of their association with the White House and the executive branch. They were just merely doing all the, like we said, just the 
providing all the millions of content to social media, you know, the government, you know, White House or FBI would do the threatening or pressuring. And then CISA would just hand deliver all the stuff that the White House or FBI were threatening the social media platforms to remove. Therefore, CISA is just part of that whole group. If you're going to prohibit the executive branch, CISA should be included in that. It's just a, it's, I'm really shocked they came to that conclusion in this. And I hope that um, this, if the Supreme Court hears it, that they lump in CISA and just say, no one from the executive branch, because I'm going to say Renee Duresta and Starbird uh, and the friends at Facebook, Berman, and they're all celebrating it because number one, um, they still getting their grants and able to do this work because if they become irrelevant and can't do work for CISA, that's going to hurt them and all the other universities and uh, these digital labs and whatnot that aren't mentioned in this case. Uh, if, they're if, still in but, business. Understand, though, if the government appeals, the Supreme Court isn't going to their. If the government appeals, the Supreme Court isn't going to take up the CISA part unless Bailey appeals or, or Landry appeals. You understand how that works, right? Well, not necessarily, because when you appeal a ruling, they're going to read the yeah, whole but they ruling. Can't, they could, they uh... can't act outside of what the appeal is. If, if Bailey doesn't appeal that okay. part, they can't rule on it themselves. They have to have an appeal from Bailey. Do you think and, he's going to do it? I don't know. That's what I was saying earlier is they have to weigh the pros versus the cons and the risks versus the rewards. Well, I don't, uh, I don't think there's much downside because they're the beast that that's really, it doesn't matter. They weren't okay. They could, the white house can argue, Oh, take down a Tucker video or a, a joke meme, but CISA was giving them millions and millions of content. That's the problem. The, the, the one agency of our concern is CISA. And so. real quick, yeah, real quick, guys, just for a little housekeeping, Mike, I appreciate you coming up. And obviously, Tracy, I got Tracy for another, I'm, I'm imagining like 10 minutes and Mike sounds to be about the same. So name what I think I'm going to do, uh, I want to finish out with you guys and kind of let you guys have the floor, Tracy, and Mike and name. Uh, and then once they have to check out, maybe we go into why we're pounding on CISA so much. And maybe we'll bring up uh, Shelby Pearson. We'll bring up uh, some of the video from like Alex Stamos and and Renee DeResta at the EIP on their in their own words, saying on video exactly how they are the Band-Aid, the bridge between what can be done from a government standpoint versus what uh, an organization can do as, as far as censorship. And I think that will kind of help paint the picture for people to understand why we're harping on CISA so much here. Okay. Mike, did you get to your uh, your positive standpoint on it? Wait, uh, nope. uh, wait on hold on. Just, just one quick thing. Actually, the um, if I if I dare say so, Myself, I, I, because I put a, a shit ton of time into this. If you go to my timeline right now, if you just click on my profile, if folks want to see the the CISA story and just want it read aloud to you while you're doing your dishes, or if you want to see all the video clips that were put on the congressional jumbotron and all the stuff that generated the the CISA story to where it is, I put it all into this forty minute video that is currently my pinned tweet. And so if if that word CISA sounds weird or why why are we talking about it so much, watch that video and you will have a crash course PhD on it 
Um, uh, and you'll also learn, I think, a lot about the nature of the censorship industry and the, the mafia that surrounds it along the way. So, but uh, thanks for, for hosting this, guys. Uh, it's been fun listening. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Yeah, everybody go check out his pin tweet. Obviously, that that is a, it's going to be definitely a thorough crash course on it. So, did we get to hear what you were hopeful about? Because you had the bad, the neutral, and I'm waiting on the good. Yeah, well, the the good is I actually, like I said, I actually do think they wanted to totally ratify it, um, but knowing how vindictive this administration is, they. Uh, I think they they feared for it. And there is something to flirtation in that sense, if you will. Like there is something to you do a little dance, you put the right foot in, you take the left foot. Like there's there is that kind of this appearance of struggling with it and take and parsing it um, makes it unassailable later in time. Because you can't say, oh, well, it was just totally politically motivated. They're completely in the tank, you know, for these free speech extremists. They just hate the government. You know, they didn't even give consideration to what the government was saying. This shows consideration. And so given, listen, I mean, the stakes of this case are so fucking huge. It's hard to even put into words. I don't think there's been, I don't even know that, that you know, Brandenburg, Ohio, comes i mean this is something that would if the district this court decision held absent the carve outs i mean this would this would effectively end the current structure of the censorship industry altogether i mean they're already moving it into things like newsguard and other stuff i did a whole video on that but what i'm saying is i do think there's a, a possibility that scotus will ultimately side with the with the dowdy decision given that's that SCOTUS really has shown incredible bravery with what they've done this year. I mean, holy crap. If you think about some of the, the stuff, my whole life, I've been, you hear about, Oh, well, SCOTUS might do this, but then they always sort of back down. It's like, not this. I don't know that for whatever reason they feel emboldened. Um, and, uh, I, I think everyone knows at some point this will have its day in court. We live in a political system, and I think that they did this as a my my sort of good news optimistic take is this was a sort of wink wink nudge nudge like hey you guys are right it'll generate the headlines that we like affirm it and that a bunch of these agencies violated the First Amendment you'll ultimately you know get your you know get yours when people more protected than us. Uh, are, are at liberty to do so. So I actually do think that that was what they were kind of, but I, of course that's what I want to believe. So I, I don't know exactly, you know, how, how, what confidence level to assess it at, but thanks. I mean, I'm in agreement with that. Like I, I've been looking at it the same way and, and I am hopeful and I've been hopeful and there's, man, the stuff that you cover myself, name uh, Tracy, it would be very easy to be blackpilled. And from what I can see here, when, when this when this judge, Terry Doty, dropped that injunction on, ju on July 4th of this year, and I looked at that and how he wrote it and how he structured it, I was like, okay, we're in business. Because, right, our biggest, our biggest problems with everything being brought before the court was proving standing, right? And they, even, even the appellate court, the, 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 the Fifth Circuit here, 
reaffirmed that they do in fact have standing. And that was for the reason of, get, of issuing the injunction and upholding provision six. So I am hopeful in that regard as well. Uh, Tracy, Mike, before you guys take off, do you guys have any final comments? Because you get about 10 minutes left, I think, on the on the schedule here. No, I mean, we've never been in a, in a place, uh, Trash, where this stuff has actually been been litigated in a way that's beneficial to the American people. Um, we've dealt with social media censorship for years. We've been gaslit to, to think that it doesn't exist. Um, we've been told that we're making it up. We've been told that none of it's true. And now not only a district court, but also, you know, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has affirmed that this government has been basically rogue going outside of bounds to censor Americans, a key, the first right that we're granted by God and that is codified under the Constitution. And as much as we should not be happy that CISA seems to be flighting free, what Mike said is true. Um I, I just think that and, and you know, they, they said this, they said, as as we go on here and more evidence comes out, maybe this will change. But for right now, we are where we are. I'm disappointed, but hopeful, um, because, again, you know, we haven't gotten this far ever. And what is to come is probably going to blow everybody's minds. You know, uh yeah, it's going to be so. Like again, I can't stress this enough. This is just an emergency injunction hearing with expedited discovery. This is not even remotely close to what's going to come out over the next couple of years in this case. And that's what you're, that kind of the point you're making there, I believe, is that like <laughs> it, this is coming. All this stuff's coming out, and it, it is going to come out, and it's going to come out on public record. It's not going to be some hyper politicized committee uh, within Congress, although it will spill over into that. This is going to be public court record. Um, <laughs> the 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 ramifications of that, I think, are far extensive. And although, to your point and, and to Name's point and Mike's, I didn't want to see CISA left out of this. It's not over for CISA, but they I, Yeah, I think Mike made a good point on the, the positive thing. Uh, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and the, the ball is in uh, Bailey's court here. And I think this is such an emergency situation of where we're at that, I mean, <laughs> through elections, the, you know, this trial will drag on. So I hope, um, I actually will, pre I think it's worth it to just appeal it right now to the Supreme Court to get an emergency junction against CISA because that is what is doing the damage. It's worth it. You have to. And I think they have enough evidence of it or can make an argument that because they're within the executive branch, uh, they're, you know, the head of the executive branch was making the threats uh, or pressure. Therefore, the underling uh, at CISA didn't need to. They just needed to provide the data on behalf of the executive branch. I think they it's worth a shot and they should do it. Otherwise they're free reign until this case is done, which could take forever. And uh, I, I want to echo that. Yeah. Correct that is if I, if I can just jump in here on that. Quick, though, Cause I got, I got about five minutes I'm, with my, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say goodbye now so I can uh, run upstairs. Sorry, trash. It's okay. Thank you so much. This is well, fantastic. Uh, what I was going to do was actually read the final um, conclusion. If you wanted to give any final thoughts on that. Okay, go ahead. 
All right, cool. So in conclusion, the court vacated a number of the line items from the post that I told you would bookmark above and rewrote what the CDC, FBI, White House, et cetera, other, other NIAID and CISA, et cetera, are barred from doing. So they vacated prohibitions one, two, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine, and 10, but that leaves for provision six, which bars the officials from, quote, threatening, pressuring, or coercing social media companies in any manner to remove, delete, suppress, or reduce posted content of postings containing protected free speech. But those terms could also capture otherwise legal speech. So the injunction's language must be further tailored to exclusively target illegal conduct and provide the officials with additional guidance or instruction on what behavior is prohibited. To be sure, our standard practice is to remand to the district court to tailor such a provision in the first instance. But this is far from a standard case. In light of the expedited nature of this appeal, we modify the injunction's remaining provision ourselves. So they went ahead and modified it instead of asking the court to do it. Any final thoughts on that? And then I'll. Yeah, Matt Taibbi wrote in his substack that he thought that that was basically an FU to the judge. I disagree. I think they did that because they knew that the government would just then argue what he said wasn't good enough and bring it back up to them again and go through this big rigmarole of nonsense. So they did it themselves so that the only place that that argument can be countered is at the SCOTUS. And um, so I I don't agree with uh, Taibbi and his. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Tracy. And I'm actually glad they didn't kick it back to the district court and they just put because there is language in there that does this, this for sure prohibits the White House, FBI, CDC from even going through CISA because it says they cannot informally or indirectly take action. So I, I'm happy with that part, but they need to appeal this and go after CISA now. We'll not- see what Bailey does or what Landry does. Again, if they don't, it's because they have deemed the risk greater than the potential for reward. I would not hold it against them. They're brilliant legal minds and they're going to make the best decision for this case. They have not erred so far. And um, I'm certainly going to support whatever they decide because they've got their reasons. And I'll ask what those reasons are if they'll uh, if they'll share it with me. I think they will. So I, I, agree, I agree with you, Tracy, that Bailey and Landry have handled this exceptionally well. The the thought though is though if you if you listen to oral arguments which I, I went through listening to oral arguments there the tone and the whole tenor there was uh, on the nature of the questions and of of each side was seemed very favorable to Missouri and Louisiana and against the government I'm actually surprised they carved out as much as they did in this decision I totally agree with name redacted that we have we are fortunate to have. The Supreme Court, which in this particular area, I don't, I don't think they're nearly as conservative as the left loves to claim, but in the areas of free speech, they happen to be a very robust court. And seeing as how CISA is like an underling here, it's very it's very obvious that CISA never needed to overtly threaten big tech in order to get what they wanted, because those threats had already been leveled by 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 their parents, which is the, the government at large. So that's, that's a fantastic that. point. That's a fantastic point. I, you know, I mean, that's what would you think before I run? Because I really got to go. But what would you think would be a downside of 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 Missouri and Louisiana appealing that portion to SCOTUS? Well, if they grant cert, they'll probably grant cert on the entire. Thing. That's almost certainly grant cert on the entire Fifth Circuit decision, including the, the parts that Missouri won. 
So if they if they grant cert on that basis, they they certainly would would almost they would almost certainly be reviewing the entire decision, not just carve out and, and to the parts that are, that were that were um, negative for Missouri to re- to review those parts. They'll review everything here. I just don't see how Missouri and Louisiana are going to lose in SCOTUS because we do have so they are so robustly in favor of free speech, and I think that I I cannot foresee. The, the arguments of the government here are so tenuous. I mean, think about what they're basically saying is that, no, we need to have a right to, to um, censor people and, and, and watch out for speech that we deem to be dangerous. That is, that is so in opposition to everything the Supreme Court has said with respect to um, or every, every take they've ever given on First Amendment rights that it would be unfathomable for this court to come back and say, we're striking down this TRO altogether. That seems... That seems like such an unlikely result that I look like I, I agree with you. I, I, I really like Bailey and Landry. I'm, I'm confident they probably will apply for cert from the Supreme Court. Obviously, it's in the Supreme Court's um, unilateral discretion as to whether or not they grant cert. But I think that their downside here to me from what we, we don't have the red well. And if you don't have the red well, you don't can, can really know everything real quick before you keep going. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm landing my plane here. My point my point is that I, I really doubt I, I really doubt that the downside here would come to fruition because of the nature of the court. But go ahead, Tracy. Why would it is it is it mandatory for them to petition cert or does this follow a different process? I'm I'm not sure what other process you might be thinking of. So like is that the only way that it's ever done is is rid of certiorari ever? I mean, there are certain exceptions. I just don't think they're applicable in this circumstance. The, the traditional route would be they would apply for the, they would apply for the the court to review and the court decides whether they want to go forward. I mean, in other contexts, there are there are situations like that. I'm not I'm not expert in Supreme Court processes and, and and protocols to tell you that there aren't other ways they could go there. But that would be the traditional way. Maybe Mike has some other perspective on that. Well, my, my only question for that that the only reason why I'm asking that question: When's the next? When's the next session where they will take up cert? Are oh, you saying on uh, kind of an emergency basis to try? Yeah, and, like, and, yeah. I'm not. I'm not familiar with that process. I don't want to weigh in on that without looking into you know an emergency application. I, I think that the emergency application people really are looking at with respect to the 2024 election. And I think that the issues with respect to cert, well, yes, I agree with you that every day that there's a violation of our First Amendment rights, that that's, that's something that creates an irreparable harm to you, me, and American society at large. At the same time, um, I think everyone's primary concern is influence on the 2024 election. So I, I, whether this be deemed an emergency, an emergency that they have to address CISA specifically right now I uh, could happen I just I, I, I wouldn't be confident that we'll see we'll see them taking this up in the next two weeks or something of that nature. Okay cool hey guys thank you guys so much for everything and thanks uh, for your expertise um, on that stuff too and uh, God bless you all thanks Trash for doing this. Thanks Tracy. Of course thanks Tracy I'll talk to you. Thank you Thank you All right so yeah, we're about uh, about an hour and forty five minutes into this. We're kind of reviewed it. We've gotten to basically the decision of the Fifth Circuit here. So we were going to initially pivot back and explain why CISA was uh, why we're all harping on it the entire time. 
but I think we pretty much covered it. And Mike has that 40 minute video that I highly recommend people going to watch, but I guess I could just open this up for a discussion at this point. Yeah. I was just going to echo, um, what, um, the following said, I don't know your first name, sorry, but it, it, this is an emergency situation because CISA remains operating as is nothing's changed. Um, and we have an election coming up. So I think it would be, I think it would be a fumble like to not appeal this. You have two rulings from two lower courts. It should just be, Sorry. It should just be um, an automatic. Um, I don't know the procedure to do it. I'm not a lawyer, but um, I'm not happy with this. And I, I don't, uh, it should not be, there's, there's good parts of it, but the most important part we did not get. That's why I'm not celebrating this um, ruling. And, and again, I, I agree. Uh, I am celebrating the fact that we've even gotten this far and that we do have the opportunity in the future. And the case is still rolling and it will get in front of SCOTUS uh, as far as what, what they've carved out of this. But again, I, <clears throat> I, I'm still hopeful and it's still public record, but I'm with you. I mean, I wish they would have just gutted Cesar right here, right here. But uh, let me just say it one other way, Trash. If they had put CISA on this, okay, it makes our little fight here between us and the censors, okay, it makes it a lot easier if we want to go after, like, you know, the censors at Facebook or, or YouTube directly. But when you have CISA in there with uh, working with private organizations that are getting government grants to, to basically do these research projects that funnel millions tens of millions of pieces of content back to the social media firms we can't it's very difficult to battle that when we can sit in our bubble on twitter but the youtube and facebook instagram even whatsapp i mean everything is going to continue being censored Um, and that's very difficult when you have again government funding of private institutions feeding CISA gazillions of data going right to social media that that's very difficult we can point it out but it's still going to keep happening that needs to end that's a problem yeah no i i i agree and we're gonna have to shut up about it either and uh, hopefully we can continue on with this got a couple other people up on stage here i don't know if you guys have some comments about if you guys reviewed what we're going over hi um i'll jump in at that point Uh, i'm I, I'm called Brian of London. I'm actually in Israel. Um, and I'm uh, not a lawyer, but I'm kind of lawyer adjacent. I'm actually helping run a, a case uh, against Google and Facebook in Australia that you don't know about. But I won't talk about that here. But I just wanted to make one little point about injunctions. Uh, and especially this, this idea of a, you know, a temporary injunction in advance of a case being decided, which is what, what was granted on July the 4th. And that temporary injunction it's it's kind of i put it in a tweet it's more like gun control you know it's going to stop the legal it's going to stop people who are law-abiding from doing something but it isn't going to stop those who are breaking the law CISA will either continue to break the law i.e break your first amendment or not um whether there's an injunction currently ongoing i don't i don't think you know i think maybe you're overplaying the power of an injunction from a district court, uh, if these people are hell bent on, you know, overturning the next election, the way 
then they'll they'll continue to do whatever they will do until a full finding in a full court and you know and you're, you're right to point out that could be a couple of years away so that's why i i read you know i read tracy's summary which is fantastic uh and i've read as much of the the main report as i can but the tenor and tone of it to me was the other thing that they stripped out in this this fifth circuit was they kind of they walked back from saying this 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 and this are not allowed but they, they they stuck with the overall idea of we all know what the First Amendment allows you to do, and this stuff is not what you are allowed to do. So they kind of nailed the people who are really obvious with just the preliminary discovery. Um, but it seems that it's almost like leaving a trap for people like Caesar uh, and the others who they removed off to say, we, we've got our eye on you now. Watch what you do. You know, they put CISA in the, they ruled that CISA falls under the quote, attempt to, to convince category, not coerce or threat. And I think that uh, if this is heard by the Supreme Court, that it would be easy to argue that by association, since they fall under the Department of Homeland Security and they are in the executive branch where this ruling found that their parents were threatening and coercing that by association they should be prohibited as well yeah i mean you know i, I i'm with you on that and and you know i i kind of i have a for some reason a devotion to listening to the podcasts the other side put out so i listen to alex stamos i listen to these people um extensively i know exactly what you mean but again you know i'm looking at this case and it's it's all preliminary yet. Go, go make the main trial. And as far as appealing it to SCOTUS, everybody is sort of saying, yes, that's definitely going to happen. I'm trying to see why anybody would appeal. You know, why would the government appeal it to SCOTUS? Well, I guess they expect that they must. But, you, you know, it's the, it's the main trial that's the big show. That's the show. That's the one everybody should be, should be pressing to get on with. Uh, and well, we we are focused on that, but the the injunction of getting them to stop the well, uh, the injunction doesn't the, stop them. Uh, the First Amendment should have stopped them. The law doesn't stop them breaking the law, and this is just more law. So that that's that's. I'll push the, I'll push back on that, Sir Brian. Okay, Sir Brian, if I can, I will push back to the counter talk here. I, I, we've spoken times in the past. Yeah, no, and 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 you're you're making a great point here. I mean, it's, it, you know, the law is the law, and then it's a matter of are people going to actually follow the law and who's going to be overseeing to ensure that they're following it. I'll tell you that <laughs> the reason I think the government is likely to appeal it is because if you read most reports, it the media's take on this is that the government lost. And that is humiliating to the government. And now at the circuit level, they've been held to be um, you know, at Judge, as Judge Dowdy said, the worst violators of free speech in American history. So that's a lot of egg on their face that I'm sure they would love to scrub off if they can. So that's the reason I think they, they likely will try to appeal and get um, a, uh, well, and get a more universal win. With respect to a, a following quick, the law... Yeah, go quick. ahead. Yeah, yeah. So there is an appeal. Uh, it was just filed. I've got it. I put it down in the chat. Oh! It's up in the nest. Who filed it? Uh, looked the government. This, yeah. this is like the time I was on TV in Israel 
about Brexit how prescient that was. Uh, and, and predicting that the prime minister would stay on and he walks straight out of Downing Street and announces live next to me that uh, he's resigning. So great. <laughs> They're making me look so good. They, like, they make me look so knowledgeable. So um, <laughs> the, uh, the other thing I would say to you is this, that you're right. You need people to actually be following the law. What I would say to you with respect to that is that for the government to continue breaking the law, they would need a partner in that being big tech. So that is a reason that perhaps we, we can be confident that big tech would be concerned that they that now if they were to allow Biden and all the parties who in the FBI who are still enjoined from collaborating with them and they would continue that collaboration, that they could be left holding the bag if they if they if they conspire with them behind closed doors to continue doing that. So in that sense, it's not like it's the, it's the government itself which would be acting alone. This type of activity, which has been deemed illegal, at least you know during, while this TRO is in effect, that can o- they can only violate it if they have a willing partner in the form of big tech. Now, maybe some parts of big tech will be more amenable towards violating a TRO, like perhaps you know Facebook or Google will be more amenable towards towards working with them than we would expect Twitter to be under under Elon's leadership. But they, they can't just do it unilaterally. They're going to need someone to help them. And the question is whether this order would would um, would frighten big tech from actually going along with this, unless they're very committed to a leftist agenda, which some of them may be. But that, that's a real that would show a real commitment to a leftist agenda to ignore a TRO. No, I, I mean, I, I agree with that completely, but I, and, but I can also see why the uh, appeal court in this case said, OK, let's just make this uh, restraining order absolutely bulletproof and narrow it down to the ones that have massive evidence already. And CISA, I understand that the CISA evidence to me is much more technical. Uh, the, the evidence that was put forward in the original, you know, in, the, in that decision on July 4th for the others was was really brutally in your face. You had to know more of the backstory on Caesar uh, and the others to kind of get it. So I, I can see, but I to me it looks like it's a it, they've just laser focused this to make it absolutely rock solid. And I don't think you know I think when uh, when these you know when Google, Facebook, uh, et al take phone calls now or get emails from any of these agencies. I don't think it's going to matter to them who they're not going to turn, you know, leaf through the court documents, find the page with the appeal and, and say, uh, now, is this one of the agencies that, that's been injuncted or not? I think they're going to be scared yes, of dealing yeah. with all of them. Yeah, oh, I, I agree. And, and again, that's, it's a good point. Um, but I think what I'm going to do here for the, for the quality of the space, because, guys, I do these. This is the sixth part I've done on Missouri v. Biden, and your guys' feedback has been great at the comments section portion of this. Uh, but I guess because this just was filed, it's only about seven pages. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm probably going to read it for the recording and read it for the people who are just listening and we're not referencing documents. And so I will go ahead and read uh, what they what the government has appealed. <clears throat> Take some comments. Wait, wait Trash. I got to yeah. bounce. Uh, can I, can yeah, I make like, one, one last comment report? Of course, before I do? of course. Which is, you know, look, when there's when there's heavy stuff like this that has big impact for, the, you know, the whole chessboard state of play ahead of the 2024 election. Obviously, there's like an optimistic impulse to try to find a way for it not to be a bad thing. And so this may be cope. But I do actually believe that CISA 
is a shell of its former self. And it's, it's important to, to understand that CISA was the first through the door. The, the censorship industry and the government's involvement in it, the, the government's involvement in the censorship industry began really with, with CISA. And I mean, it goes back before that a long time, depending on how far you want to, you want to go. But CISA was really the first loud and proud. We're doing this and, and we're going to assert that it's not a first amendment violation. And it was only after CISA successfully got away with the 2020 election censorship op that, that censorship expanded like a cancer, it metastasized throughout the body of the federal government as all the other federal agencies got emboldened by the fact that, well, hey, CISA did it and nobody made a peep about it. So, you know, the White House, DHS, National uh, FBI, the National Science Foundation, there became this whole of society really entrenchment. But just because CISA was the first doesn't necessarily mean they loom the largest. In a lot of ways, like the White House, the Biden White House actually started doing later in time what what only CISA was doing originally. And and so and CISA has also deleted. You know, they purged their, their website of all the references to domestic censorship. I actually just caught them deleting videos from their YouTube channel. They they um, Jen Easterly, I, I've, I've got mm, friends, I'll, I'll say. Uh, who 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 know her and say that she's a highly political animal who's extremely sensitive to uh, to congressional spotlight and negative headlines, and that uh, she's been bruised badly by this. And so I'm not fully convinced that CISA is going to have the balls to try to do what they did in 2020, uh, even if they were legally allowed to uh, through through this court ruling um uh but that's a good thing and a bad thing because it's a good thing because it sort of means that this ruling in itself excluding CISA might not be that big a deal but it's a bad thing because now the cancer is going to metastasize into the civil society and into the so-called middleware i did a whole video on this the news guard and all these guys uh so that there's even less of a government link perceptible Anyway, last two cents. Thanks. Thanks a lot, guys. Talk soon. No, I appreciate it, Mike. And I, I think you're spot on as well. And um, and I, I am fearful of where it moves if it's not cut off completely. But uh, no, I think it's a really good point. And uh, thanks for your insight. I really appreciate it. Uh, like I said, guys, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll go ahead and it's only it's really it's seven pages total. but It's only about three and a half, four pages of text. I would like to get anybody's uh, feedback on this once I read it for the room. And again, I'm doing it for the space. Like I said, this is part six. I've been covering this for some time now. And so I just wanted to make sure I get this on the recording. And we've been going for about two hours. I typically like to limit these to about two or three hours because there's a, basically the audience goes back and plays back and listens. Uh, so this, I, I, I just, anytime people see five, six hour spaces, they're like, oh no, I'm not going to listen to that. And so it's that important that I want to come make sure that I'm very tight with it. So just real quick, this was uh, filed today. Um, and this was uh, in the Fifth Circuit. They're basically appealing uh, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And this is a Missouri v. Biden case. <clears throat> so this is what their response was. Okay, this is actually just, just filed. 
the government respectfully moves for a partial stay of the preliminary injunction entered by the district court to the extent that the injunction is in inconsistent with this court's September 8th ruling pending the issuance of the court's mandate. In the alternative, the government respectfully moves for issuance of mandate forthwith. One of those forms of relief is necessary to avoid allowing preliminary injunction entered by the district court to take effect upon the expiration of the 10-day administrative stay entered by this court, even though this court concluded that the injunction should be vacated in part and that the remaining portion of the injunction should be modified. We respectfully request that the court act on this notion, motion no later than Wednesday, September 13th, because the nature of the injunction that will take effect upon expiration of the administrative stay will inform any request for relief the government may file to the Supreme Court. So again, real quick, what they're saying here is, is that, okay, so like, you, so you, the court, the Fifth Circuit, you guys took the appeal on the injunction ruling from Terry Doty. You basically stripped out one through 10, but keeping six. And then modified six, including modified the parties uh, that would be in this in this motion and injunction, and therefore, um, because there was a time time date, they're saying that uh, they have to act on this motion instead of waiting through October, and they're going to go into this uh, by September thirteenth, so they can then file. Uh, the government may file within the Supreme Court. Uh, is that your your take, guys, from that? Well, I would tell you this: that normally when there's a stay. Or, or, or of the nature that was applied by the Fifth Circuit. So just procedurally, to give everyone some background here, the Lucia Louisiana moved for a TRO, saying that while this case is ongoing, that they sh that the parties who are involved should be enjoined from committing the activities that they've been committing prior to the commencement of this case. They were granted that TRO. I'm not going to go into details about that. But... Um, then when they moved, when they was brought to the Fifth Circuit, so the government succeeded in getting a stay on the injunction, and that stay on the injunction basically meant that all that the government was no longer prohibited from from interacting with big tech in the way they had been interacting. Now, when you when the Fifth Circuit grants that stay of the injunction. It has a shelf life, which usually dies within a couple of days of when they hear the case and issue a decision. So what, would, what the government is pointing out, probably correctly from a procedural perspective, is that because the decision has been rendered by the court, the stay that was put into effect dies a few days thereafterwards. And accordingly, Judge Dowdy's initial order would go into effect in full until there's a new official order that would be entered. And they're afraid that, that, that Judge Dowdy's initial TRO would naturally re revert to the state of events because of the way our procedures work. Yeah, this is somewhat of like a technical appeal because apparently the Court of Appeals decision won't become final till October 31st. So they're appealing. Th this filing is basically... Uh, they're asking the, the higher court to either make its decision final now or put a temporary hold on the lower court's orders in the meantime. That's what this is. It's not it's not like a Supreme Court appeal, obviously. Correct. So, so it's supportive so that they have breathing room because well, they're they just. Yeah, because they have a 10 days to a stay for the Supreme Court, but the Court of Appeals decision won't become final until October 31st. 
So this appeal is putting a stay on the lower court's decision and asking the appeals court to make their their decision, their final decision quicker than that. Because the possibility is it creates a vulnerability from them between now and then if they do any type of social engineering or pressuring or censorship. Yeah, this, this is probably like a something that should have been expected. Yeah. And people should be aware that if the if the Supreme Court grants that application, the purpose of granting it would be to, to at least in the short term uphold what the Fifth Circuit did, because right now there would be that gap until October thirty first, which would which would which Judge Dowdy's initial decision would be what's governing law. So it's not reflective of how the court feels about the Circuit's decision or anything like that. It's really just for maintain for maintenance of everyone understanding what the obligations of all the parties are rather than being this sort of conflicting morass of are we acting under Judge Dowdy's initial order or under the Fifth Circuit's revised order? So that would be a reason for the court, the Supreme Court to step in and say, okay, this is we're going to put these rules into effect that are going to apply for the next six weeks or so without the Supreme Court actually giving any sort of reflection as to how they feel about the decision of the Fifth Circuit or Judge Dowdy's decision. Yeah, so, that's why it was filed as a partial stay, because uh, the government is happy with most of the ruling. They just that timeline of the district court, their ruling is still in place. And that's why they want the they don't want to alter the rest of it. So I, I was I was thinking this is like a Solomonic decision, right? Like King Solomon, right? So you're kind of splitting up the baby kind of argument. So I was reading something from um, um, a Harvard professor who did a substack regarding this. So essentially, by carving off these other entities, they can still go and do whatever they want, maybe yes or no, um, until October 31st. No, they cannot do whatever they want until it's been decided. So it's still kind of, they're still under the eye, so to speak. Exactly. Like okay. CISA okay. cannot do anything. The district court's um, ruling is in effect till October 31st. Right. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, that pre that's pretty much it. And, and then what they do is actually offer a couple solutions in this motion. So they're saying first this court could enter a partial stay of the preliminary injunction to the extent that it is cons inconsistent with this court's ruling pending the issuance of the mandate. The government is entitled to such a stay under the ordinary standard, and it references the case, because this court has already held that the government's appeal from the injunction succeeded to the extent of the proposed stay, and because the court's opinion makes clear that the government would suffer harm by being prohibited from engaging in legal conduct. <laughs> again, there's that again. That's that was not part. That's not part of the um, the initial injunction, and it's certainly not uh, taken away in the uh, decision by the Fifth Circuit. Then they're saying, in the alternative, the court could direct the clerk to issue the mandate forthwith. The clerk will immediately issue the mandate in such instances as the court may direct. The court has previously taken that approach when vacating a preliminary injunction, presumably to avoid the anomaly presented here. And there's a case that they cite. So they're saying, as between these options, a partial stay would be preferable as it would give immediate effect to this court's modification of the injunction without otherwise altering the course of the proceedings. But either form of relief would avoid the improper result of allowing the district court's preliminary injunction to regain effect 
even after having been held invalid in this court. That's essentially what you guys already laid out. But that's that's the government's argument in this procedural uh, procedural uh, appeal to the court motion. But that's about it. What we're up so far, we're pretty much up to date at the end of this part six. I don't know if you guys have any comments you guys want to add before. I... Yeah, what's what's interesting is that um, they they may not end up going for a full appeal because if they because this is all PR at this point as far it could be from their perspective a matter of PR. So if they feel that the Supreme Court steps in and grants them this some order which basically would put the Fifth Circuit's um, mandate into effect immediately rather than waiting until October 31st or something of that nature, they might feel like that's enough of a win in the court of public opinion that they might not bother going forward with an appeal if they assume they can operate through SISA. Now, as Mike pointed out, SISA may not be sufficient for what they're looking for. They might want to have the FBI to have their continuing involvement or Fauci going forward as is all talk of, of, of a new surge of COVID that's coming. So they might they might want to have more direct involvement, but this does limit it does modify my my expectation and or at least temper my 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 earlier comment that they're definitely going to move to appeal. Now I move it down to like they're likely going to appeal, but not but it's less definite if they feel they get a win, which I do think they'll probably get a win on this because there is some sort of confusion that's going on now. And I think the government will get a win in the sense that the Supreme Court will step in and say procedurally this is what's going to happen between now and October 31st. So I just wanted to read something. I posted this um, below the space. So there was a response uh, from the DOJ, and most of the media is relating this to uh, a win for MAGA, which is so narrow in scope and, and the narrative of how they're spinning this. I just wanted to read this statement, and maybe you've read it already. The White House spokesperson said the DOJ is reviewing the court's decision will evaluate its options in this case. The administration has promoted responsible actions to public health, safety, and security when confronted by challenges likely a deadly pandemic and foreign attacks on our elections. They're explicitly trying to make this mostly COVID, lab leak, Hunter Biden's laptop, and marginalize this as some type of right-wing talking points and conspiracy theory. This is not that. And so there needs to be a re-education of the American public. What is going on with this case? Um, and, and to that matter, they're going to have to go more aggressively if they are going to the Supreme Court on these very small details, which I, I hope Americans in general are going to pay attention to or listen to. Um, you know, they even posted in this, they, they made a response regarding Carrie Lake and her comments around Google, which I mean, name, you know, we were just speaking about this the other day. Um, regarding you know Google's impact on, on elections, and so I'm a little concerned. They're trying to narrow this scope more and more and more to say it's a few fringe, you know, right wing MAGA topics, you know, to minimize the impact, and it's very significant. And I, I don't know how we create that communication out there to provide more clarity regarding this. And it's still going back to we did the best we could during a pandemic. That is literally their final talking points. And that some of academia is silencing us. So, and the other interesting thing is in terms of, um, so interesting how there's like almost like a fight between the Atlantic councils of the, of the world and the response from the White House regarding the lab leak conversation. And they even bring this up in this article as well. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit concerned they're, they're um, going to get away with, for lack of better words, murder. 
um, with this unless uh, it, we create more awareness of the implications of this and not just have it just focus on a few small topics um, that they think they can marginalize for us. So that's where I'm at with that. Oh, I mean, they're 100% going to try to spin this, obviously. I mean, this is very, very, especially within a, an election cycle. Oh, this is a big deal. So naturally, yeah, of course. And then it's going to be, oh, no, it's just these fringe lunatics, this, this lawsuit and this heavily, heavily tribal political judge and this and that and the other. But they're really not going to be able to run from this as easily as they can. So, again, talking about, you know, this is why you know, name and I have been, you know, banging on about CISA so much is because it's not so much Twitter. That's not where the American people are. I mean, yeah, they're on Facebook or they're not, or they're on Instagram or they're not at all. And uh, so, I mean, so basically those are, that's still moving full steam ahead. And so there will be suppression. There will be banning and, and uh, deprioritizing and, and, and uh, de-boosting, you know, posts and content and suspensions and all that. But at the end of the day, you've got to start somewhere. And this is the first win we've even seen. And so I think there's going to be a lot that they're not going to be able to hide from on this. And as the case goes on, because it's public record, um, as more evidence and more uh, exhibits come in on this case, the more it can be amplified in the public to say, hey, here are the receipts. This is in public record. So it is going to be incumbent on on people on social media and in your real lives to be talking about this stuff as it comes. And obviously I'll be reporting on it constantly, but uh, yeah, go ahead, name. Well, um, I just, you know, this, this filing today, it's just like a procedural thing, but the ruling um, on uh, the eighth that we're talking about, I do not consider it a win at all. If, if they're not going to include CISA, which is the main culprit of, of, providing all the you know the uh all that content to social media if they're not included it is a loss at the end of the day if CISA is allowed to continue operating with government funding okay we can't counter that and then they're going to have these outsourced uh groups doing research and just funneling uh millions of con uh, bits of content to social media this is a loss like CISA needs to be lumped in and prohibited from uh, doing having these, um, you know, sending information to social media. It, it is they can be included as as a threatening agency since their their parents were threatening. That's just the way I, I view it. And I'm not I don't think this is a ruling to really celebrate. I mean, OK, fine. The, a guy that works in the White House isn't allowed to email someone at, at Facebook and say, oh, you're killing people. Okay, fine. But CISA, the one that's actually, you know, giving them all the data on a weekly basis, millions and millions of tweets, that is the, uh, the thing that needs to be stopped or, or this is a waste of time. Well, there is, a, there is a potential positive that can come out of this, out of this, um, this carve back from the fifth circuit in the sense that the timing of these cases is really dictated by the judge and seeing as how judge Dowdy has expressed in perhaps the most vocal terms I've ever seen from a judge about his, his shock at the level of abuse of first amendment rights and the significant carve back 
that has been made in allowing CIS to continue this activity, it's possible that Judge Dowdy will push forward the timeline on this entire thing to actually give a final decision well before the 2024 election and issue and, and, get, and have a finding which could, it would not be reliant on the Fifth Circuit or anything of that nature in the sense that it's not going to be his order, but it'll be you know a final ruling in the case altogether which would prohibit all of these agencies from from into from meddling with big tech. So that that's the potential silver lining that we can see out of this because we do see it's very it's very evident that Judge Dowdy feels very strongly that the government and on all these different agencies have been violating our first amendment rights. Yeah, see so I, I agree with that. Like I think that the overall outcome will be positive, but my concern is we're in September 2023 we have uh, an election a year away, but the time between now and then, the, there's a lot of damage that can be done if CISA is allowed to operate as is and as they have been. That's my concern. Oh, I agree with you. I agree. I agree with you. I, I think even one day of them doing this causes irreparable harm. I mean, it could be. It's look. Let's fa- let's let's be real about this. The people who they they target are people like who are expressing publicly opinions like we are expressing here in this space we are on the front line of this in the sense that it's you or me that can be censored and stripped of accounts tomorrow so you know and 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 hundreds if not thousands like us who may be larger or smaller in with respect to their the reach of the to the public but we are the ones who are on the front line here we're the ones who who biden was talking about in his red speech there where he was talking about the, the biggest threat to our country is ultra MAGA. I mean, who's he talking about? He's talking about us. So, I mean, you can, we can laugh, we can laugh about his terminology, but it's been reflected in the way the government has carried out their, their you know, the executive branch has basically gone hog wild in trying to find any basis possible to come after people, people like us, or many people in the audience here, like Brandon, like Brandon Stracker, who's, who's in the audience here, or countless others who are the, who are the face of what they consider to be a threat to their power. Yeah, I just wish that you know the bigger voices on the platform that cover this stuff aren't so quick to jump and declare this some sort of major victory because it's it's not like part of that district court decision was well most of it was or well sorry well the biggest part CISA was clawed back it was reversed um so tracy's first uh reaction to it was right but you have large accounts on here like praising the thing and i don't know like in the meantime as we said beating a dead horse sissa continues to do well i mean at least till october 31st they're prohibited because they're under that district court uh ruling so they're not doing anything right now but as of october 31st or if the appeal court replies to this or makes a new ruling based on the filing today um sis is going to be back in business and uh that's a problem and i i do think we'll have a a good outcome in the end but do we (laughs) there's a lot of damage between now and the end and And i'm I'm gonna plead mea culpa to what you just said name redacted because you know i when when this decision first came out the reporting on it came out i happen to be dealing with the family function over the last week or so, because my son just got married, but I did a quick, I did a quick read and was very pleased with the result. And I'm glad that you have spaces like this to help enlighten the public. Because, yeah, I have a whole different take on it over that developed over the last hour and a half. And I thank you for that. But you're right. 
in that, you know, a lot of people are going to just take a, most people who are not attorneys are going to take a cursory read and just assume that everything's okay. But I think it's also because, excuse me, we're so desperate for any win in this topic, right? We beggars have become choosy. And I think that is a key component to understand when you've you, when you've starved people to such an extent, you know, throwing them, you know, half of a of a rotten potato in a sense. Not that to say this is is not valuable because there's a whole learning lesson inside of this, but that just shows the level the level of starvation. You see, you know, uh, uh, Berenson's response saying, you know, what about the DOJ? Okay, what about the FBI? Okay, CISA can just subcontract out go deeper this article by this you know this uh lawyer is it's very interesting he makes the points of the concern and then afterwards starts to go into russian russian disinformation which we don't talk enough about on these spaces you hear me bring up eon pasepa right you hear me bring up the palestine papers you hear me bring up the disinformation campaign and the trove of evidence he brought over And, and so there is some clear points about you know russian interference um also hurting conservatives and their narrative and spinning. The problem is they've been turning social media against us rather than turning it outwardly towards those entities and, and, and those foreign uh, um, foreign interference into, uh, individuals rather than turning against Americans. It's not the these organizations were created to fight what's considered the granddaddy of, of you know, uh, misinformation, which was the Russian Empire. They were the most skilled at it. They probably still are. I mean, we're probably second, but we've learned from their skill set. And it's a shame that people don't go back in history and read books like that um, so they can understand the infrastructure of it. Um, it affected even, you know, when Carter was president and took down the entire Communist Party of of Romania with Ceausescu. So people don't understand this because they're not looking at all the different pieces that the problem is, is that we have to understand that they're turning this against us. We're just trying to keep people alive, you know, and, and we're trying to have free and fair elections and, and let the people decide if the Hunter Biden laptop is going to affect or not. But there's so much more of an implication to this of things that we probably might not even know that was done during that period of time that they're concerned eventually we will find out and they will be culpable for it. And, and those, whatever can come out of it, sanctions or, you know, uh, remuneration, legal fees, whatever it may be, um, um, awards to, to people who have had their lives ruined. Um, that's a bigger picture as well. And I think sometimes we don't know what we don't know. Um, but it's just interesting how, how this, um, this professor, this lawyer at Harvard is, you know, arguing has a whole, uh, uh, law course on this at Harvard, just Missouri v. Biden, which I find is very interesting um, as well. So thanks. Sorry, that's it. No, yeah, I, mean- I would just say, you know, this is a the, the document we're talking about is 74 pages long. OK, and 99 percent of people are not going to read that. And they're just going to uh, grab on to the, you know, the initial headline reactions, sort of like the algos that do their automatic Oh, we won. This is great. They revert. The White House can't talk to social media, but that's why these spaces are so important. It's why Tracy's analysis of it is extremely important. Um, so the the worst part of this filing is on page seventy two. So we have like six hundred people on here listening, or five hundred. How many people got there, or even opened it, or? It's like, just don't be too quick to declare victory when there isn't here. And um, I don't know. It's just, 
Well, I mean, that's why Tracy and I were running around on Friday when the decision dropped. I mean, I mean, she sent it to me right away and we were talking about it, bouncing back and forth. We got through maybe yeah. 30 pages, right? I'm seeing all these posts and tweets everywhere. And I'm like, I'm hopping around, hopping around to comments like, guys, 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 you need to back this up a bit. You really need to read and see what's going on in here. Because again, some of it's good. Yes. Yes, it is. But it's just an injunction. But the evidence is what I was always, the exhibits were what I was after, right? It wasn't yeah, so Yeah, so I, we but, can but, explain it. Go ahead. Yeah. So, but again, it needs to be, it needs to be known and people need to understand and like temper expectations, but moving through this need to understand exactly what they've got. So again, you can go through the space, you can go through Tracy's reporting and the threads, you can go through my threads. So uh, that information is there, but yeah, finish up name and I'll get to Vin. So just to sum up um, from the point of view that the, the appeals court was coming from in this ruling. Okay. They basically outlined um, threatening behavior, whether overt or covert from all these various um, divisions, the white house, the NIAID, Fauci's area, the state department, CISA, the FBI, the CDC, the surgeon general. So they looked at all of those uh, organizations, these um groups their behavior what did they say on tv what did they say in writing um and because the white house and the surgeon general the cdc and the fbi their communications with social media in some cases were overtly threatening and then in some cases were suggestive based on their authoritative position Okay. And then some of those agencies also discussed and uh, terms of service with these social media platforms and those platforms changed them. So that's why this ruling prohibited those agencies from discussing or even talking to social media about these sort of things. And because CISA wasn't doing that, that's why CISA got off the hook because their daddy was doing it. That's the viewpoint I'm coming from. And that's what I think the appeals court there uh, from their position. They just didn't see threatening behavior or terms of service discussion by CISA. That's why CISA was let off the hook and the State Department. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I was kind of talking about that earlier as well. So, uh, Vin, go ahead. Hey, thanks, Trash. Good to see you. Hey, name. Um, Yeah, you know. I think for me, the biggest payload for this, because obviously we're not going to see anything substantial for a while, you know, as far as outcome. But I think the biggest payload is the opening that it creates to discuss uh, the First Amendment with with other people who who are not deeply steeped in these things. You know, just your regular people on the street who are hearing about this, who don't know the details, but it's evidence that these things are taking place and you know as the as the case progresses forward we're going to see pushback obviously well we may not like you know like name was saying they may not you know they may they may not appeal to to the supreme court they may not go any further so but if they do and even in the near term like now it gives us an opening to discuss the importance of the first amendment and how you know the the federal government can step in and chill speech Everybody understands that. And I just think that this is a great opportunity, even though, like, you know, it may not go anywhere. It may go somewhere. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, but I would suggest that everyone use this as an opportunity to when you're at dinner with your friends or whatever the case may be, 
bring it up, talk about it. And, and also bring up the fact that, you know, misinformation is, is, is a relative term. You know, if somebody's trying to take over the Republic, then any language that, that is discusses, you know, halting that effort is going to be by them considered to be disinformation. So that's, I would just say, you know, use this as an opportunity to, to, to bring up the discussion. That's all. Thank you for your, uh, for your work on this trash. Yeah. Appreciate you, Benny. And, uh, and again, if you guys want to learn more about this, go to Tracy Veen's profile. You can go to mine, you can go to name, you can go to the chat below. It's all there. Um, Again, this has been part six. <laughs> this is the sixth part of breaking down Missouri v. Biden through updates and through the case, revisiting if there's any new information or just comparing it to existing information that was coming out. I think I did part two or three was because uh, the House committee came out with some stuff that uh, was related to Missouri v. Biden. So it was, I figured it was time to go back in and, and show where a lot of the source material came from and what it was about. So, I, 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 again, these are very important tools. Uh, in my opinion, as I said in the beginning of the call, just at the end here now, just like in every other space, this, in my opinion, is a landmark case. This is probably one of the most important civil rights cases that we're ever going to see run through the courts that I've seen in my lifetime. I mean, the future, you never know, uh, as we have a more and more tyrannical government. But uh, this is a big piece of that tyranny. So in my opinion, this is probably one of the most important civil rights cases going through the courts right now. And uh, I think that not enough people are paying attention to it. I think they're starting to. Um, but, uh, hopefully we keep pushing it forward. We had a couple thousand people in here today. And so hopefully that gets carried out to conversations at home into other social media. Maybe people clip some stuff. Maybe you got documents that you didn't have before. Uh, but everything, everything surrounding this case, um, is here. So, uh, I, I want to get some final thoughts from everybody, uh, before I close this down, we're about the two and a half hour mark. I typically like to limit these to two and a half, three hours. Uh, that way people can get it, uh, listen to it, and it's not cumbersome to try to get all their information over five or six hours. So if you guys have any final comments before I, I would just say that um, we are ultimately going to need a ruling by the Supreme Court. We need a, uh, a very specific ruling that, you know, should the government even be allowed to talk to social media even in the category that they put CISA in as the attempts to convince like if if an if a government or any part of the government is attempting to convince as the appeals court says a social media platform you know th this is a very uh this is not this is not good so it ultimately is going to need to be decided by the Supreme Court, whether they get involved now or at the end. I hope it's now because it would prohibit if the Supreme Court would get was able to rule on this. Now we can have a we could halt CISA's activities through the election and through the trial. And that's what I think is important. That was the whole point of of this um, uh, injunction. So. I hope that's what happens uh, and stay tuned. We hopefully in the next week, I think trash will probably hear if, if there's an appeal on that, but that's what I hope happens. Um, otherwise, you know, we'll keep, you know, Tracy is the main one covering this and then trash does the spaces. So, and I sort of give my commentary and I read, I read the 75 page documents and whatnot. So just follow us and, and uh, we'll, we'll be keeping you up. Um, unbiased, by the way, 
even on the Jim Jordan thread, like, I don't care if something's in caps. I'm going to, you know, call things as it is. I know trash is that way and Tracy as well. And that's the way it should be. Um, I think well, it'll end up working in our favor, though. I yeah, just hope I, sooner. Course, yeah, of course. But I, but ultimately, my message has always been this. Uh, even with even when I'm covering things like uh, the DNC influence machine and the David Brock's of the world and the Michael Teeters of the world, even when I'm covering them, even when I'm covering, we're covering the censorship stuff that obviously was, you know, <laughs> heroic doses of censorship towards conservatives. Uh, this will be weaponized against the left at some point. If power shifts, make no mistake about it. This apparatus is technically neutral. It just has interests behind it towards one direction. This will go the other direction should power swing or should a result be desired uh, by the people who have the levers, their hands on the levers of this of this machine. And that is the whole point is dismantling this machine. So it does not go one way or the other. It just happens to go the direction of that, that I that I view things politically. But unbiased is absolutely true because I don't need to put a political spin on something that is that is black and white factually true. Yeah. And just, again, one other thought is we're able to have these discussions on this platform, but there's not a lot of reach here. Just don't discount, uh, don't forget that tens of millions of Americans use Facebook and Instagram to get their news. Okay, so the fight is most of the censorship there and YouTube and the Google search algorithm. Um so that's why we're going to keep staying on this and hopefully get the message out and get good outcomes better than this one. I just wanted to say thank you to Trash and Name and, and obviously Tracy and everybody who's done all this work. I just read through Trash's whole thread really quickly. I was working, so I was trying to catch up and I'm going to listen to the space again because I know the comments were probably amazing in here. Um, so just thank you guys so much. Thanks. Yeah, following Vinny, do you guys have any final words before I close this out for the day? But I appreciate you guys being here as well. Yeah, I just want to say great job. Um, you know, Tracy's thread is amazing and just great job. You know, just uh, I just look forward to more of your insights and I appreciate the, the ones that have come so far. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, you and name both. Thank you. Thanks, yeah, I, re I really enjoyed this as well. If you're ever covering any topics related to law, if you, should, if you kick out a DM to me, I'll try to pop in on these spaces. I enjoy having these conversations and helping flesh things out. So you can feel free at any time to drop a DM to me, and I'll be happy to join you. All right, and thank you so much for hosting this. Yeah, absolutely. And you and I are already connected through DM, so no, no worries. I'll just shoot it to you from now on. All right, uh, guys, I really appreciate you being here. We got about two and a half hours out of this. Uh, it was a huge update from the Fifth Circuit. If you really want to go back uh, and listen, like I said, I, there's there's six parts to these spaces. Uh, if you start, I would say roughly, if you would start at, say, part three. So, like, if you guys want to access that very easily, go to my profile. You'll see tabs. It'll say posts, replies, highlights, anything of consequence or threads that I've done, different topics. If you go to highlights, you can actually scroll up and down, see the various different things that I've done. Uh, I've got uh, part five in here that we did on August 11th, David Brock and the DNC influence machine. Uh, obviously the government's corrupt, that's censorship stuff. I've got part two of Missouri v. Biden, that was a good space there. Uh, Blue Star Strategies, Sally Painter, that has to do with Ukraine and, 
and what's going on out there. Uh, Missouri v. Biden, part four, the Facebook files that was in relation to Jim Jordan's uh, release. And then part five should be in here. Biden, Inc. and the documents was the first one. But I believe part three. Yeah, so part three is a really, really good one. It's at the very bottom of my highlights. Missouri v. Biden, part three, uh, injunction ruling. And this is when the injunction first came out. So if you guys want to go back and listen to those, you guys can go look at that or you can follow Tracy's reporting or do both. Now, I don't forget, if you guys go to uh, Mike Benz's profile, Mike Benz was in here earlier. He's at Mike Benz Cyber. If you go to his profile, he's got about a 40-minute video where he breaks down why we've been hammering about CISA so much, what CISA is responsible for, who they are, give you all the backstory, give you the nuts and bolts of it, uh, better than we can spend hours going over the threads that Name has done and myself. So Name Redacted has tons of threads on individual censorship apparatus that exists within CISA and our government. Guys, this is this is like kind of our wheelhouses, what we talk about a lot. But if you want to go back, go to my highlights, go to Name's profile. It's all there. And again, I appreciate you guys. Share the recording. You guys know that you can link recording outside of this to people that maybe not have a Twitter, get them to sign up and have them listen. Uh, share the documents, whatever it takes. Appreciate you guys. Thanks, Trash. Thanks again, Name. Appreciate you. Thanks.